When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief and President of Consequence of Sound, and I'm here with my co-hosts... Randall Colburn, the rockin' one. (laughs) And Mackenzie Gerber. Now, you can hear us pretty well, right? I think so. That's because we're recording from a studio here in Chicago, Illinois. That wasn't always the case, though. When we started this podcast, we were actually huddled around an old Yeti microphone in Mac's apartment that he doesn't even live in anymore. That's right. And there were not four or three of us. There were like six or seven. So we wanted to go back to our older episodes and make sure that you, constant listener, actually have a good grasp on knowing that this is not how it's always going to sound. (laughs) You know, it's a very rough quality. And we just happen to have that rough quality over Stephen King's most iconic books. So yeah, it's rough. But I'd say yeah, for Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage and The Stand, I believe. Night Shift too. And And Night Night Shift. Shift. We recorded those episodes in a very sort of primitive way, um, doing our best. That was before we got our studio, which makes us sound so lovely. Uh, But yeah, so you'll notice that the audio quality is going to be a little bit not up to par, but... I'd say the content of the conversations are still very, very good. I'm very proud of the analysis we did. You'll notice a few other changes, too. Like um, in these early episodes, we talk about everything. Everything. Yeah, we didn't like now we stretch our legs a bit. We do separate episodes for the movies, for other things. And for here, we're basically like, let's talk about all the Stephen King news, as well as the book, (laughs) as well as the films, as well as the plays, as well as everything. So these episodes run long. um, Well, I mean, a lot of ours do, but these run extra long because we're talking about those things. And you'll also notice that kind of the way that we break down our conversations now is a little bit different. We refine that over time. Yeah. So, so yeah, you'll notice that it's a little bit rougher, but it's the same quality Losers Club content and that these, you've always wanted. These episodes nearly killed us. Uh, the yeah. Night Shift episode, I got the flu because we recorded 
for everything. We recorded for eleven hours straight. Yeah, I think. two yeah. episodes back to back, covering all all what twenty stories, all twenty stories, and, and the movie, and the movies. Oof. It was exhausting. I was, I think, towards the end of the episode, I started fading away. Dan started uh, crying. Dan started crying. <laughs> I cried in the Shining episode, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, th- th- these episodes are special. They're very good episodes. They're very special episodes. But we did want to make sure that you didn't go into the this podcast thinking that it's going to sound like this forever <laughs> because obviously as you could hear from us right now that's just not the case yeah if you're just popping in to hear like oh i love salem's lot i'm going to check out this new podcast why does it sound like they're recording underwater you know we just never really thought that uh i, I think that you know we were testing things out we were yeah. seeing if anybody would even care if we did this podcast and luckily a lot of you guys did care and you listened and supported us and followed us on social media and so we were able to you know beef up the sound make things sound better expand our lineup and refine the way that we do things uh as it is now so. because so much has changed mm-hmm. since 2017 not only with us but the whole world at large and you're going to hear about all of it as you're journeying through each one of these episodes so why don't we venture together into king's dominion aka the classroom at the center of richard bachman's rage uh today um we're going to be discussing a controversial Entry in the Stephen King <laughs> canon, um, and that's the short novella *Rage*, uh, which was released as a standalone book in 1977, and it was the first book that Stephen King released under his pseudonym uh, Richard Bachman. Before we begin, um, I'd like to introduce our panel because we have a uh, a new uh, member, our Bev Marsh of um, of the Losers, Losers Club, and uh, Allison. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hey everybody, I'm Allison Shoemaker. I'm a staff writer at COS, uh, and I first got into Stephen King when I read Night Shift mm. at a really inappropriate age. I think I might have been like seven. Um, oh, that's like man, and I got weirdly. Well, it's I had this problem where I, when I was a kid where I started reading really really young. So eventually, teachers would just send me to the library during English because, like, I didn't need to do any of the things they were doing. <laughs> so I just started reading whatever the hell I wanted, uh, which is maybe not the best thing. Um, but I got really obsessed with the story in Night Shift about the girl who kills herself. Um, oh, the last rung on the ladder? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I haven't got... Yeah. And it um, was not a thi- healthy thing for a seven-year-old <laughs> to be crazy obsessed with. That's I also... My first actual encounter with King, though, was... Also at an inappropriately young age, I was five or six when my Aunt Sue decided she wanted to rent us a movie, um, and she thought that Cujo was just a movie about a dog. So I watched Cujo, uh, and it fucked me right up. I'm yeah. not going to lie. That was really freaky. Her really sweet, very docile dog, Misty, was just laying on the floor, and right near the end of the movie, she started having a bad dream, and her tail started going, oh. and I screamed and ran out of the room. It was real, I was real, oh, real mature. I've never watched Cujo with a dog in the room. That oh, you got one, that, you got a murder dog, so you should, uh, you know, you should watch it next got time. got my own Cujo. I have a pit lab mix. He's very docile, very calm, but he looks a little, a little fearsome, yeah. so, yeah. Well, he has a history, so, we doesn't really have a history, you know. Um, love you, Hank. Because these episodes are, you know, our goal with this podcast is to be as comprehensive as possible. As you might have noticed, our Shining episode ran three and a half hours long. Uh, We do not apologize for this because this is the actual goal. We want to be comprehensive. We want to be dorks. We want to go deep. We want to engage 
on every single level that we possibly can. And that includes the books, but also the adaptations. The Shining, there was tons to talk about. Rage, maybe not so much, <laughs> but we still have plenty of thoughts. We do want to apologize for missing out on the opera yes. of uh, The Shining. Several uh, we will be out. doing a special episode of all opera adaptations uh, for, <laughs> uh, for uh, Stephen King's work. Um, we're you know very excited about that episode, and we're going to go actually try to find uh, opera singers uh, to uh, give their thoughts on what could possibly be um, some better adaptations that they uh, can bring to the stage. So that is a, a you know an area of The Shining that we did not uh, you know we did miss, but uh, we're going to make up for. I didn't even know about that, I, and and several listeners sent us messages and pointed that out. So kudos to you guys. Um, also, I wish I had the person's name now. Who sent us the uh, the the Trump Putin Shining? Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I would have to look at the name. But yeah, we, that was genius. That thank was, you for sending thank that. Thank you. Yeah. We will, uh, we'll shout out your name next time, if you're cool with that. I mean, if you don't want your name uh, revealed, that's fine. But that yeah. was that I laughed so hard as soon as I saw that, so thanks for sending. If for any of you listeners who didn't see it, it was uh, the dog man and what's the guy's name? Horace Derwent. Horace Derwent, that, that scene. Character. but the favorite character. But obviously photoshopped where uh, Trump is the, is the dog man and uh, Putin is Derwent. So thank you for sending that. Um, why don't you two... Uh, introduce yourselves. Oh, sure. Hey, I'm Dan, Dan Caffrey. Uh, if you're a first-time listener, hi. If you've listened before, I've been on a couple episodes. Uh, senior staff writer of Consequence of Sound and King, Kingaholic. <laughs> he is a Kingaholic. <laughs> he is a Kingaholic. You've read every, uh, piece of, uh, piece of King? Except for the Bizarre, is it Bizarre Bad Dreams or Bizarre Oh, yeah, Bears? Bizarre Bad Dreams. Bizarre Bad Dreams, and, um, I haven't read that, uh, that memoir he just, or the one about his college years, yeah. uh, which I really want to, so... I'm debating whether to read those now or when we get to them, but it'll be so long. Yeah. Well, we're going to probably get to those probably around 2021. 2022. <laughs> so I think that'll be, you know. Maybe just read it then. Yeah, yeah. you might want to just read it. But I mean, knowing you, like, you know, it doesn't matter because this is, uh, you know, one one of the, the specialties of um, uh, Mr. Caffrey is that he doesn't have to reread uh, a lot of the books because he has a photographic memory. Um, and uh, he's kind of like Johnny Five in the <laughs> short circuit films, in which he can consume books like it's no like like it's like, like it's you know it's a task or something. It, it's it's insane. Like um, we were driving um, home from my bachelor party once. Um, once, like I had multiple ones, but no, we, we were driving home from my bachelor party and he just randomly found a book that was in my brother's, cl- like my, like bag was, or something. Uh, ripped by Greg Cott. Greg Cott, so Chicago, uh, Chicago yeah. boy, uh, Greg Cott. And, uh, he finished, managed to pretty much finish this like 400 page book by the time we got back from, you know, into Chicago. Granted, we were only driving from Minneapolis, so it's not that far, but he's just, I mean, honestly, it's just, uh, he, he is a, a robot when it comes to reading and he, uh. Remembers details like it's uh, like it's no other. So, um, I am you? personally jealous of that. And uh, my name is uh, Michael Rothman. I'm uh, editor in chief over at uh, Consequence of Sound, and I uh, I struggle with details um, sometimes because I uh, I have a really weird short term, long term memory. So uh, I, if I could, I would almost be like. Um, uh, what's his name? Leonard in uh, Memento, where I would just uh, tattoo everything <laughs> onto my arms and, uh, and my uh, my legs. I, I have to take notes for everything because uh, I just I manage to lose details of it. But I could also recall, you know, pretty much the entire supporting cast for Halloween Three. So, <laughs> you know, really, really useful details in my head. So um, I'm, you know, glad well, to be back on, on the podcast. On that note, we're glad to have you all here. Um, as you know, as you'll see. 
uh, the the cast will always be changing, um, just like uh, you know the sequels to Children of the Corn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does that make Justin and Mac uh, one other? Because that kid's in. Who's the kid who plays um, Isaac? Isaac? Who's in like every single one? He is directs, he in every single one of the children? Not like, every single one, but he. But the character is. And he directs. He like directs them and everything like that. Oh, so he's made it his life's work. Yeah. Justin and Mac will be back, of course. Um, I sat out for Stillms a lot. Uh, you know, there's when when you have seven losers, as within. It, uh, you know, not not all seven can be on every podcast. So I, I will say that uh, Allison um, is. Uh, you played a certain uh, king character at our event uh, last year, that which that which was probably the MVP of the show. Um, oh yeah, no pretty way, great. pretty was great, not. pretty great. Because was not. you actually acted out. You got somebody in a the, wheelchair. The wheelchair. Um, Stephen Arroyo, yeah. who also writes for us. Allison played Annie Wilkes at a uh, live Stephen King event that Consequence of Sound hosted at the Music Box. Um, yeah, you were great. I, I would say that was the most accurate, just personality-wise, yeah. and, and you embodied the part very well, so good job. It was pretty Thanks, great. guys. <laughs> Allison also has a pet pig with her right now that you I can't do. See. It's, I do. I was a great fit because I have a naturally slack face. It's just like the muscles ab- above my mouth don't work, so I was able to just kind of stare. It was great. It, it was really fun. Uh, so let's move in. Let's talk a little bit about a little book called Rage. Previously titled... Getting it on. Getting it on, which is uh, horrible, and I um, hate that line. This was a book that, by all accounts, Stephen King wrote when he was in college, when he was, you know, probably 19, 20 years old, um, which I think allows us to forgive it for a lot of its sins, which we can discuss. But before we get into that, let's, uh, I'm going to read a synopsis here. We have two different synopses. Um, we also like on the show to discuss uh, kind of what additions that we initially found Rage in, which I think is interesting now because um, uh, it's out of print. So if we had it, we had to read it in a you know in an older edition. But let's read a synopsis first from this is. Do you know the publisher, Mike? Let me. This see. is an old. He's got an old, busted up hardcover of the Bachman well, books here. Funny story about this one. Okay. All right. Um, and we're gonna probably talk about how it's been, you know, stripped away at this point. From yeah. Like, he's tried to like couch it, but I actually bought uh, one of the Bachman books on Amazon um, before I started reading it, uh, and some liar gave me <laughs> a newer one without rage in it, even though it had the photo I saw when I bought it. Was the seventies, you know, orange cover paperback one? With the skulls on it. Yeah, like it was probably the eighties one because I think it gathered them in the eighties. But I, I was hoping I was going to get that one, and I got this dumb modern one that looked like it was like from like nineteen ninety seven. Like on a, mm. it looked like a Wired magazine too, and, <laughs> and I was I was furious. Like so, I had to find another one, and I, I kept like I, I even like contacted the seller. I was like, this better have rage in it. Like so yeah. he probably thinks I'm a killer or something. But like, <laughs> yeah. I really want this like. The, you know, short story. Or well, whatever. because real life school shooters have professed their fandom for this book. And yeah, I have. It out, so, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk discuss about that. that. Yeah, but uh, this is uh, this this looks like it's the Now Books uh, trademark. So it has. Um, it, it seems like it's from the oh the New American Library version. So cool. Sam, from and Sam. then on the back there is one line synopsis. It says a high school show and tell session explodes into a nightmare of evil. I think that's kind of inaccurate. I it's, wouldn't say show and tell is really what's going because on. Because show and tell is something that would actually happen in school, and he doesn't do that. He just walks in the room and shoots Mrs. Underwood. You're missing the most important part of that what? synopsis, by the way, which is the ellipses. The oh, way. yes, there is yeah. an ellipses. And all it looks like all the synopses on the back here. Nightmare of, this of Evil. <laughs> 
And then here I have a longer synopsis that is from the original paperback version of Rage that came out. And, and then, again, as we said, this was a book that was he wrote in college, and then after kind of the massive success of... Um, of Carrie Salem's Lot and The Shining, I think that publishers were like, what else you got? What else you got? What else you got? Like, It's basically what John Grisham's been doing for the past 30 years. Yeah, so, and know. so I yeah. think King just pulled out this old manuscript, and I mean, I think maybe, and this is something I, I, I wasn't able to find him talking about, sort of his impetus to release it initially. Um, oh, if you have something... Well, in this version, because I know it's not the version you have, in this uh, compilation of the early Bachman books, which is the same one I had mine just in paperback, but it has the... Uh, has like the illustrations of each novel on the cover, but um, what he, he has an essay in the beginning of that called "Why Was Bachman?" and he talks about oh, interesting why he released these. Now, I think this would change now because of his feelings towards rage. But yeah. in this one, he talks about how oh, it was a pretty good book, and yeah, it was written in college, and um, it was like a mixture of them, yeah, wanting to see what else he had, but also just this thing of. Once he become not a household name, but famous, you know, trying his hand at at. Uh, other types of fiction and without see that if, expectation exactly and yeah. see if you can be successful the, the essay is, is pretty good it's called why was bachman the, um, the essay is better than the actual book so i would know. actually agree with that yeah, yeah so um so here's the synopsis from that version uh a disturbed high school student with authority problems kills one of his teachers and takes the rest of his class hostage over the course of one long tense and unbearable unbearably hot afternoon that's a typo charlie decker explains what led him to this drastic sequence of events while at the same time deconstructing the personalities of his classmates forcing each one to justify his or her existence what an asshole (laughs) oh man it's also not what happened yeah Uh, i think that it's i think that this is a hard book to synopsize in a lot of what is because they imply it's unlike a lot of king books it's very light on plot and it thinks it's very complex on theme but it's really not and we'll, we'll get into that in yeah a bit, so but. i guess like from here we like to move into what we call the hook ah yes don't you see don't you see how clear it all is not only can you see the future you can i can change it you can change it exactly you know, what, what is the anchor for this story? What is um, kind of the inciting incident, the thing that kind of, you know, is the engine of the story? And I think here um, it's the idea of a school shooting or somebody bringing a gun to school, which um, that, I think when King wrote this, probably, what, in the 60s? 77, I think. Well, well that's when it was released. He probably wrote it in the 60s. Yeah. And it, yeah. I mean, when did... Um, when did Tower happen, the, that, that Texas that, shooting? That was early. That was, I think... Don't quote me on this, listeners, but I think that was in the 60s, late 50s, or early 60s, um, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, look that up. Just 1966. Oh, no. No, he maybe it is. 1966? Yes, That's August 1, 1966. The University of, of Texas shooting. I think he might have been inspired by, in a weird way, by that shooting, because he also wrote Kane Rose Up around that mm-hmm. time, which is a short story from Skeleton Crew, where a guy goes up into a tower and shoots people. And school oh, shootings yeah. back then... Were of course they happened, but they weren't. I mean, it's sad to say they weren't as common as they are now. They they you know this is pre Columbine, obviously. This is. I don't want to say we are not shocked when a school shooting happens these days, but it's not. Unfortunately, it's not as much of a unique event as it once was. So, I could see. I can see the impetus behind rain because it is a horrifying scenario in a way, and especially this time when I, I don't think there had been a ton of popular fiction about that. There's still really not. I mean, school shootings seem to be, school shootings seem to be, 
something that I don't want to say taboo, but they have to be handled a very specific way. Yeah. It's not like other genre fiction where you can just write about a serial killer or a bank robber or something like that and just treat it however. Like, honestly, the only thing I could think of that even comes close to being like kind of tongue in cheek about this is it is a missed book is Bobcat Goldthwaite's, um, is Bobcat Goldthwaite's, uh, what is it? Uh, oh, God Bless, God America. Bless America, which is kind of takes that sort of idea of adding some smarm to it, like, mm-hmm. which is definitely what's in this book. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Which is interesting because yeah, it definitely isn't, um, when I think of the, the fiction or, or just, uh, pop culture, I, I have consumed about school shootings. You know, I think of elephant, which mm-hmm. isn't smarmy at all. That it's no. very just kind of, I haven't, have you guys seen that We Need to Talk About Kevin? Isn't that about yeah. like a school mm-hmm. shooter yeah. or something? I, so it's weird because as much as, as we'll get into our feelings about whether we think it works or not, but as much as I don't like rage, it does give this weirdly unique treatment to a school shooting yeah. that I haven't really seen. Well, there it's not a shooting, yeah. but yeah. it feels a little bit like Heather's, only Heather's does it mm. way better. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Did you know the first school shooting in the U.S. was in 1764? Was it in Michigan, right? Was it at uh, that farm? 1764. Greencastle, Pennsylvania. Yeah. I know there was there was one, I think it was in Michigan. There was one, it was like in a schoolhouse, like it was just one building. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think the guy used explosives and all this stuff. He killed like the entire school. Oh, yeah. A long time I, I, ago. Yeah. yeah. I actually wrote I a thing on that. cannot believe I totally like blanked on Heather's. That's like one of my favorite movies. So. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> like, confession, have not seen Heather. So, so re- ooh, real quick, it. um, and you guys can spoil it for me. Do you mean is does that end in a piece of school violence? Or? Well, it's it's more of like varied deaths though. Like he mm-hmm. like JD who's who's played by the inimitable uh, Christian Slater who I had a crush on <laughs> since I was little. Who um, hasn't? Who hasn't? Like yeah. the coolest. Like represents cool to me forever. Um, yeah. He is. Uh, he plays a character named JD, uh, and he has a gun on him. Like mm-hmm. you know throughout the whole thing, um, which he uses. But they they I mean they use like poisons. They have like bombs they have like a bunch of different things throughout the the movie but it definitely is like the first real like pop culture example yeah. of that like absolutely and that's dark but um also tongue to dark comedy, comedy, right? it's, so, it's so over the top Heather's yeah. yeah that I think that's how they can get away with it and I yeah. think it's such it's such um touchy stuff because you know, when King wrote this, he probably, he didn't understand the implications, I think. Because, you know, you write about serial killers, like you said. You write about murders. You write about these people. You don't write it worrying that people are going to imitate them. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's not something that is a precedent in pop culture, which when he wrote this, it wasn't. I think this was his way of exploring both his own anger that he was holding as a young man, which I think, you know... I think any of us can relate to the idea that when you're young and you feel misunderstood, you want there is sort of a part of you that wants to scream at the world and to do something that will get everybody's attention. And I think that's sort of what he was going for with this. And, um, and the idea of creating somebody who brings a gun into a classroom and is portrayed as smart, um, but disturbed, uh, but at the same time, like kind of cool. Like the other kids caught into him pretty early. Yeah. And we'll, we'll touch on that because that's, I think sort of the real problem with the story, but Mm -hmm. It's. I don't think he understood the implications of what he was doing, and King pulling the book from publication, which we'll touch more on, really came from, I think, he started to see the ripple effect. He saw mm. school shootings, and these kids were either talking about rage, or they had copies of it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this is goes back to Lord of the Flies, 
I mean, it, it, the the fact that they have like a pig pen character in here, they have the you know the um, the whole concept of this like leader with the antagonistic um, kid mm-hmm. that's there also, Ted so it's Jones. Like the clashing of the the two parties. You know, he names Castle the, the 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 name Castle Rock comes from Lord of the Flies. Clearly, that book had an impression on him. And mm-hmm. you know, if he wrote this as a, as a young author, you know, I I'm not I'm not a writer like in terms of for fiction, but I know that. When I tried to be at a certain age in college, there were authors that were absolutely impressionable. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I tried to be Brady Snellis for like four years in college. Like I, was <laughs> I tried to, so you know, hard to be Jonathan Safran for. Really? Like, <laughs> so hard. Lots of but, but that's natural, though. I think as a writer, because you have to find those. You know, we have to elements. imitate before you innovate. Yeah. Exactly, and I, I, I guarantee this book, like Lord of the Flies, he read was a huge impression on him, and he said, "Well, maybe I can do a modern spin on this." in the in the school you mm-hmm. know? well and it's funny you mention that because i remember when i was 10 or 11 i read lord of the flies and i read the chocolate war which are both books that deal with um youthful rebellion in a way but in a very dark sense and i remember just thinking you know i, I didn't even stop to think like oh this stuff is really wrong and bad i'm i more just thought it was cool that these books represented kids sort of doing their own thing mm-hmm. and in a weird way trying to act like adults like, I remember in the Chocolate War, there's this whole secret society called the um, the Vigils in school. Have you guys read the Chocolate War? God, that's such a good book. Yeah. It's, it's an awesome book. It's, it's still really good. Um, and they this guy, Archie, who sort of leads them, he keeps all these, like, files on every kid in school, just what their weaknesses are, what they're like, how they can be manipulated. And now I look back and you're like, oh, Archie's a total asshole. But when I was a little kid, or even a, a teenager, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, what, you know, that's neat. And so... Obviously, I don't. I don't think I'm a murderous, dark, bad person. But um, when you are a certain age, I think that that idea of pulling a fast one on other people and being looked at as this kind of like smarter than everyone else, um, I think that is really appealing. Uh, uh, every every year, I um, I ju- I adjudicate plays like that high schoolers write for um, for thespian competition, and the common theme I always see is the main character being this kind of dark, depressed, but very smart and funny uh, um, kid who's always able to, like, he's smarter than everyone else and he's always able to pull a fast one. And and I get it. I don't think that's a good way to go with a character, but I totally get when you you are a king's age why you would want to do that. And I get that, too. Uh, But, you know, I think that with as mental health awareness uh, and sort of, you know, forgive me for using this phrase, um, I always get yelled at online when I use it, but toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. things of that nature um, are becoming more apparent now, and this idea of entitlement within young Mm -hmm. white men, um, that they deserve to be, uh, you know, coddled or admired for their darkness and for their uh, misunderstood genius. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is something, that's something, I I say all this because I went through that, and I wrote stories that were like this, where it was like, pity me, pity me. Um, And... If only could people people could see this side of me, and I think Stephen because Stephen King said um, in an interview where he was talking about you know the book in uh, Entertainment Weekly, he said certainly in this sensitized day and age, my own college writing, including a short story called Cain Rose Up and the novel Rage, would have raised red flags, and I'm certain someone would have tabbed me as mentally ill because of them. And this is something he's been struggling with, is he's like. He's like, we need the freedom to be able to write what we want to write, but at the same time, we need to be careful 
um, and look for red flags in art that discusses these sorts of things. But just like, I mean, that's the thing though, is like, he's like, well, I didn't have those things, but I was going through that. I'm the same way. Like I wrote stuff that mm -hmm. people probably could have tagged me for mentally ill when I was young, but nobody did. And I turned out okay. But it's like, I think that it's, it's, this is something that I think we're struggling with in sort of the modern age of, you know, when people are writing these kinds of stories, how best do we process it in an age when school shootings and um, male entitlement at a young age and stuff like that is becoming more prevalent? Well, I think part of the problem, too, is that um, while the words are lovely, the writing is just not very good, mm -hmm. right? Like, there are a lot of stories out there about young people who feel misunderstood and behave rashly and sometimes you read them as a young person and you feel a certain kind of empathy that when you read them as you're older you're like oh well I completely missed the point of this entire story because I didn't I wasn't far enough out of that time in my life mm -hmm. like you read The Catcher in the Rye as an adult and it's a completely <laughs> different experience yeah, oh, than when absolutely. you read it when you're 16 or um, I recently reread Emma Jane Austen's Emma for mm -hmm. the first time since I was God, I don't know, 15. Yeah. Uh, and that book is hilarious. And I didn't realize <laughs> yeah. it because I didn't get that she's an idiot. <laughs> because she's young and we're all idiots when we're young. I think the problem with rage is you don't, it doesn't read differently now. Right. That's like, a great I don't, way to put it. I don't think, oh, well, that's because he's 16 and we're like that when we're 16. It just feels, I don't know dishonest it just feels like yeah. like king's not in on it exactly yes. you you don't get that king is criticizing this guy and saying how fucked up he is when i read it now i read you know I, this is, i actually did reread this one for this episode just because i wanted to make sure i didn't because i did interpret the book so incorrectly when i was younger mm -hmm. rereading it you're like oh no when king wrote this i think he thought Charlie was just as cool. I'm not saying King at the time thought it was good to go and shoot your teacher. I don't believe that at all. But personality-wise and Charlie's struggle, I think he, he thought that th that was something to relate to and that was something cool. Well, I, I think a lot of the insight to glean from this is that, you know, I don't think that King traditionally writes himself into these books at all. And I'm not going to say that he's written himself into this one. <laughs> but there is something weird about this fringe character, which clearly he had to identify with somebody existing on the fringe. Like, I just, I mean, this just, just based on how his past was um, and how he's written, uh, you know, characters that we've already discussed and how he's kind of like, you know, you can definitely see his own self in there, like whether it's like Ben Mears or um, mm. even like parts of Jack Torrance. You know, I do wonder if this, and I don't want to make any assumptions, and, and this is going to be an assumption, is that, you, that, that idea of having Ted, who represents the jock, and then having this guy that, you know, Charlie, who's on the fringe, there is that weird dynamic of, like, you know, you have, if you do exist on the fringe in high school, you're very mistrusting of everyone in high school. And, he, and, this, and that is one thing that I will say in this book that I did see. Like, he did capture that feeling of, if you are out on, like, on the opposite end, you hate everybody. Mm -hmm. And, like, and I think that, you know... Is, is is someone that had to go through Catholic school while growing up in a family that was Jewish but also not like it, it was like I, I definitely like I did I had, a, I had a mistrust of everybody at the school um, not did I walk into a classroom and shoot my English teacher and, and sit down at a desk and math make, teacher like, oh math teacher yeah and, and, and have all these other things no I, but I, I understand 
the one thing I will say about this book is that I do think he captures that feeling of having that like us versus like not even us versus and I versus them, mm-hmm. and 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 that's that might be the strongest part of this the this story the line of it. And I do wonder how he himself put him like what position, what point of view is he does yeah. he have here? And I think along those lines, I think a great preface to uh, teasing out those themes is to just kind of look at how other people, other people like interpreted it or school Mm -hmm. shootings that actually are linked to rage. Uh, There's several. Um, One I'm going to talk about um, pretty intensely that happened in 1988. But um, because the book was released in 77, but there are no reported incidents until 1988. Until it became a King book. Yeah, until it it became a King book and not a Bachman book. Um, And so, but like, you know, a lot of them, they merely found copies of rage in the... um, uh, in the possession of the school shooter, uh, there was a guy named Dustin Pierce in 1989 in Kentucky um, who took his classroom hostage, but nobody got hurt. But people found a copy of Rage in his possessions. Another guy, Scott Pennington, um, this is in 1993 and also in Kentucky, weirdly. And there's another Kentucky one later too. Um, basically, uh, this guy actually shot his uh, English teacher in the head um, during her seventh period class. And then he subsequently shot and killed the school's custodian as well, held the class hostage for 20 minutes. And right before this, he had written um, an essay on rage and was apparently mad that the the teacher he shot in the head gave him a C on it. And he was apparently mad about that. Um, And then in 1996, a kid named Barry Lucatus um, uh, did uh, shot his... uh, students in his algebra classroom, just like in Rage, and actually said the line, this sure beats algebra, doesn't it? Which, yeah. when this happened, people were reporting that that was directly a line from Rage, which it isn't. It's, this sure beats panty raids, is the line in Rage. But, um... Still, I think it's close enough. It's close that. enough. I mean, and they found a copy um, of the book in his possession. So, um... But, yeah, and then I think the, the one that really pushed King to, um... Uh, take the book out was I think up to that point the biggest school shooting at least in modern times which was in 1997 in West Paducah Kentucky where Kentucky again? Yeah eight students were shot at a prayer meeting and I remember I was old enough at that time that I remember hearing about that that was like pre-Columbine I think the school shooting that people were were most um, that was in the media the most, and um, they say he had a copy of Rage um, within the Richard Bachman omnibus in his locker. This was the incident that moved King to allow the book to grow, go out of print. But I mean, if you go back to the very first one in 1988, Jeffrey Lynn Cox. This is the most blatant use of um, of that r- how much Rage was factored into the shooting. I've got. Um, I've got some, I had from a LA Times article, um, this is really fascinating stuff, but uh, basically this guy walked into a classroom um, and, you know, started shooting. He didn't kill anybody right away, and um, the way the guy described it, this, the shooter himself and a thing, he's like, it was all like a movie. It was like I was following myself around with a camera, watching the back of my head, but not able to intervene. It was just something that had to be done. Um, and then he says he put a Van Halen song on a portable tape deck. Did they want anything, he asked? Food, drinks, smokes? They did, so he called the school office. Someone will die, he told the secretary, if a carton of Camel Lights, four large pepperoni pizzas, and two packs of Coke and 7-Up diet and regular aren't delivered within 20 minutes. 
Then he turned to the class with a chuckle and told them not to worry, that he didn't think he could shoot anyone. If his demands weren't met, he would just fire into the ceiling to make it appear that he was in control. Um, and so it's he was acting like Charlie Decker. Th- that's like almost direct a direct... Um retelling of the plot yeah and um and then he was uh apparently was obsessed with the book um and he also um was suicidal and kind of he discovered rage when he was suicidal in the hospital um he was in a hospital because he had tried to kill himself and um he was like under care and he started reading rage and by all accounts and by his own account, he read the book over and over and over and over and over again. And he th- and then his quote, and this is what's really kind of terrifying, and this is where I think it really gets into the main problem with Rage, was that um, uh, I had a message I wanted to get across of unmasking people, of disrobing the images everyone puts on, of making people real. I still think I had the right idea, but it was the wrong way of doing it. It was very foolish. And the article... Uh, uh, describes, they say, it wasn't a classroom full of fictional teenagers experiencing a spiritual cleansing while rigor mortis set in on their algebra teacher. There wasn't anybody to snap at the big man on campus, as one of King's characters does, saying, don't you realize this could be the most meaningful experience of their lives? And I think what this story does is really draw the distinction between what King used, um, he used school shootings as a way to explore uh, the spiritual cleansing of people, like a Lord of the Flies kind of thing, Mm -hmm. where, and the way everybody reacts to the school shooting is so nonchalant, and we'll talk about that, but here, it's like, what the kid realized was, I'm gonna go in there and be cool, and everybody's gonna look at me like they looked at Charlie in the book, and and that wasn't the case, and then, no, like, the mo, and the the way it ended was, the moment there was a, a weakness, one of the kids ran up, knocked him down, and they all piled on him, and then... He got arrested. Which is know? what would hopefully happen. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, something that really bothers me in the book, and, and once again, I think it's because King is not in on mm-hmm. on what he's doing, is the fact that the kids react just like, oh, our math teacher's dead or whatever, and that's not not cool to me, <laughs> I guess, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look back at other famous shooters like Mark David Chapman, I mean, he took it as this, you know, the just what you were discussing before with, like, well, I have to prove, you know, that so-and-so is is this and you know bring out the real person in them i mean he thought john you know that john Lennon was a phony like he mm-hmm. thought he had this like mission that he got out of the holden caulfield character in catching a rye and he thought well you know i have to bring out the reality in someone and you know i have to find the truth basically it was like almost like him like his way of like pulling the actual truth and being like see this is you know this is a person for who this is who this person really is and it's like this almost like self-righteousness that the shooter, like just just using his and him and his, as an example, that drives him. It's like the like self-righteousness like is his fuel. And I think that's definitely what you can see in Charlie here for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I think that's kind of what is his whole motivation, kind of. I, I, maybe maybe I'm just like looking way too into it, but no, I think that's accurate. And I mean, going back to these books getting pulled because of, or this book getting pulled because of all these incidents. Obviously, I mean, we're all writers here, and I think we're all big proponents of free speech. I think Stephen King is, too. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I think, just like it's your right to write that, I think it's your right to take it away if you if you realize the effect it's having. And, you know, I think kudos to him because, I mean, five, five how many incidents? Five school shootings? Something uh, like that? Five, at least five that we know. Five that were reported. Yeah. Five that were, were, were reported... I mean, God, three of them in the same state within, what, a decade of yeah. each other. So that's average on average one every two years. 
if you're seeing that now, now would these these kids have done something similar had they not read Rage? Probably because yeah. I don't I don't think the book is what caused them to. But still, they're taking inspiration from it on a consistent basis. I I do think it is. I think when it gets to that level, like people are dying because of this, it maybe you do have some responsibility as a writer to evaluate. Okay, how are how are how is my book appealing to this certain demographic of mentally unsound people? And why is it appealing to them? And is it up to me to do something about it? Well, I, I think it's dangerous. You know, there's always the the argument that you know, well, every anything is game for for storytelling. You mm-hmm. know, like this. You know, if you can write a great story, you should write a great story. I think the reason why there's always been the cloud, and especially now about like school shootings, is that the idea of a school shooting is going to always involve children or like like young adults. And it's not just the fact that those deaths are always the hardest to, to, you know, to, to handle, but it's also that by setting a story in that, you have to be very delicate on who is going to actually be the shooter. Because, you know, if you make something that's very cool and make something that's very, I mean, like, kids are impressionable. Like, you're the most mm-hmm. impressionable, like, that's, like, the most impressionable time of any, you know, of any lifespan. Like, it's, like, is that, that era. So I think that when you do create these stories that involve school shootings, you have to be very precarious on like how you're going to, you know, uh, involve yeah. the shooter. Like there has to be some sort of, even like, and especially now, like I don't even know if there's even subtle commentary anymore because there's just the subtext and context is so hard to, is, is so easy to lose. So that even if you did something that was like a Heather's where like there's a JD that's obviously a bad person, but he's kind of cool on the, on the screen. But then you realize like, no, this is a perversion. Like he's crazy. Like, well, there's a like, reason there haven't been a bunch of school shootings inspired or instances of school violence inspired by Heather's, at least not to my knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and I think this, what, what it really boils down to in rage is that, um, Charlie is depicted as someone who is mentally ill, but, um, but the omniscient narrator, uh, seems to view him as justified in a yeah. certain way. The death of the teachers that he kills are downplayed um, to an almost comical effect, and the students um, are so nonplussed by the whole thing. Uh, they look at Charlie as a curiosity rather than a threat, and the way Charlie engages with them is so nonchalant and so confident that it betrays kind of any kind of recognizable human emotion. The only person who acts um, in a way of self-preservation and um, her- heroism is Ted Jones, who's who is portrayed the bad guy, <laughs> who's villainized for being a suburban lamo. Mm-hmm. Like he's the he's the jock who will never leave the town and get married. And how dare you? And it's and I think that that's the problem with the book is that. Um, Charlie serves as almost a guru to these kids and the kids begin to look at him as such and he's so eloquent in his um, intentions and that when the the scene that really rankles me in this book is when he's talking to the cop, Philbrick, and he just, it's like this is a cop who is a seasoned, uh, you know, negotiator, like hostage negotiator or whatever and this... 16 year old kid like just starts accusing him of like I can't remember oh he, he starts talking about going down on his wife and stuff like that yeah. and that like bests him oh I think that's the shrink he talks oh the to shrink. yeah that's right that's right yeah. well regardless all the authority figures are bested by this 16 year old kid who 
you know, we're supposed to see as disturbed, but by exploiting people and shaming people for various things, usually sexual, um, he wins all the time. But it's also the revelation, too. I mean, like you, you know, like we were saying, like Ted is this person that is actually the most sympathetic character in the story because they, they have the whole backstory about how he, he has like a really like troubling, like, you know, his parents, like I think his mother is um, was an alcoholic. An alcoholic. He had and, to quit football yeah. because he had to support his family. I mean, and somehow that's viewed as being his dirty little secret. Yeah. It's really. Uh, not great. And, and also, too, even when... And he's, like, really ashamed because um, he reveals a sexual thing about Ted. And I thought I thought it was going to reveal that Ted was, like, a rapist or something. Yeah. But it didn't. No. It was just that he... Like, and any other high schooler yeah, had... Yeah. They're like, it's like this gotcha thing with Ted that I remember just finishing the book and be like, what the hell is going on? Like, uh, yeah. Well, and... Uh, this, there are plenty of issues with this book. The fact that all of the women in it are defined by their purity or lack thereof yep. is like mm-hmm. the maybe at the bottom of the list, but it is an issue. And really, when the class seems to turn on Ted, it's when they find out that he had sex with the virginal white panties girl. Sandra, Cro- as those, Sandra Cross, also. Even the name oh is God. kind of... yeah. Which is like... Uh, it. It's just really offensive it's yeah. that somehow he tanks her purity it just really makes me yeah upset. and i think that what we're touching on here uh is kind of a, a nice segue into sort of the structure and format of the book One of the things that I think ties into what we're saying is how is how much um, is how troubling both Charlie's motives are and uh, means of executing them, but also like how much everybody's on board with him. I, I remember I laughed out loud after his first flashback, um, which is about <laughs> his dad. And we'll talk, yeah, because I think the structure here is sort of like we get scenes in the classroom and then we kind of get some insight into Charlie's past and his background and then we kind of come back to the classroom and we see how they're reacting to these stories he's telling. But I remember he tells the story about his dad and it's a pretty unremarkable story. And when it comes back, um, I think like, I think Sandra Cross or Carol Granger or one of them is just like, what happened next? And it said she asked breathlessly. And it's kind of like, who's going breathless by this story? Like dumb campfire story. I know. And so, but I think that I've heard, I've heard my dad, I've heard my parents say like awful shit before. But it I mean, the, me. the Cherokee nose job is kind of well, and well, that's he, yeah, and that he's also gross. obviously physically abusive. So you add in his dad is physically abusive. It's implied that he's more abusive when he's drunk, mm-hmm. and then the idea that he's physically threatening his wife in jest. But you get that other scene where he grabs her so hard that he leaves finger marks mm-hmm. on her and. Eh, I mean, but, it's a boring story. Yeah, but, but it's just yeah. like, I don't know if breathlessness <laughs> no. is the response to it. Yeah. But, al- but also, like, if... All right, so we're getting in this guy's head, and yeah. you have an opportunity to actually give some sort of reason or impetus for why he has just derailed. Yeah. And the only... I mean, if, if, it, if there is this situation where he has been abused and he has had these things, which I do believe also, why aren't we seeing that? Yeah. Like, why are we holding, withholding details on that 
and getting these little these this thing like the camp I mean the campfire situation is interesting but I just I have to believe that there are darker stories that are there and given the stuff that he has already freely shared on there I mean the very embarrassing transparent stuff why wouldn't he then also give that too because we're in his head for a lot of it too so why don't we see that like, well, and, and that's and that's the problem because I think yes I think it's implied that there is even darker stuff going on than the act the concrete details we're getting and now in a more artful book you could say that like if it was a Cormac McCarthy book or something you would you would just get it to the point like okay I know something's up here I'm not going to find out what it is but that's okay I, it, it's like it's all in in subtext or but that's the problem with this the book is so it has such verbal diarrhea whenever he goes into a memory because he's just going on these monologues essentially about all the shit that happened. It kind of doesn't make sense for him. Not it's it's like he goes into the wrong things. I I guess if if that yeah. makes sense. It's just the the way that he goes into each memory is just like like oh like what now, Charlie? Like, well, I'll tell yeah. you. Like, I, I'm like and then there, there's like a, like a colon after each thing. Like I almost picture like just in the like the do 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 yeah yeah yeah. I think um I guess my question is do we find uh this structure effective because um. I think for me, like you're saying, he's sitting back and the implication is that what we're reading is what he's reciting to the classroom. <laughs> it's so long. It's, like, it's And it's so long and it's so like articulate, you know? And of course, obviously, like in the world of it, you know, it's probably not word for word what he's saying, whatever. But it's just like, like, do you think that this is this means of, uh, of bloodletting and memory sharing via like, you know like, uh, oration or whatever, like, him sharing it that way is the most effective means of exploring this past? Or would this have been better as a, as a, like, a longer linear story where we started with him as childhood and we built to the school shooting? Oh, God, please, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, no, not in a million years. Um, you know, I think you can see what he's going for, but I feel like the book completely undermines itself right near the beginning when um, Ted's like, oh, you're going to blame your parents for you going crazy? And he's like, no. And then he does. (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. There's one of his flashbacks that I find compelling, and it's only because the girl he's talking about is in the classroom. When he goes to Carol's birthday party in the suit and he gets beat up. And the only reason it's interesting to me is... Because I'm reading it, thinking about what it must be like for that young woman in this room mm-hmm. to be hearing the story. And when he comes back, they have sort of interplay. And he, there's a quick throwaway line about how he um, expected her to tell him to stop. And she doesn't. And at one point, she covers her mouth. But that's it. And it's just... it's. And then the, the guy who beat him up is dead. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know he's that. dead. It's All the bullies get theirs. And oh, God. It's this perfectly harmless football player it's just so messed up i i think i don't yeah i agree with allison i don't i don't need um the life and times of, of charlie decker please no but i want a netflix series <laughs> yeah. oh okay. yeah this should be a mini eight part uh-huh. netflix uh-huh. series by the duffer brothers uh-huh. of, of, of rage <laughs> yeah just do that they just have one of the kids in stranger things grow up to be him but yeah. uh but so I, I don't need that necessarily i do think it would be more effective if it was if it was just all in real time and we don't get these entire flashbacks because this and this goes to just a, a problem with horror in general it's the whole idea of explaining the monster it, i mean the reason those halloween remakes suck is because they have to explain why michael myers is the way he is now charlie decker's not on that level because he's he's a human he's not like this entity but i would suspect that a 
person doing what he's doing, they may have some insight into why they're fucked up, and they definitely have blame, I think. They, like, know who they want to blame for it, but I don't think they would have the, the, the mental clarity at that point to really break down why they're doing what they're no. doing. I mean, if, no. you, if you read the... I mean, like you said, Mark David Chapman, I mean, who knows why he is, like, the way he is. It's not because of John Lennon. It's not because of J.D. Salinger. It's not because of his parents. I mean, maybe those There's things... Something that tra- yeah. it, that, or John Hinckley Jr. Didn't, yeah. try to ki- didn't actually try to kill Reagan to impress Jody ex- Foster, ex- right? Exactly. And, not, and I think that's the problem with, him, with right. him going into these monologues is that he is, like... Uh, to quote through him, he's playing psychiatrist, you know? And, he, and he's actually doing a good job playing psychiatrist because he is analyzing himself. And I think that's the problem with the structure the way it is, is because when he goes into these stories, he's not just saying, like, this is what happened. He's saying, well, this is what happened, and this is why I am the way I am, yeah. and this is now. And that's the big issue for me. So I think if it had just been in real time, maybe with not quite as many details, like, imagine if it was in real time, maybe even from the first person still, but we don't go into all this backstory, and we don't really know why. I think that would have been a much more affecting thing once again there's a reason why um there haven't been school shootings inspired by elephant and things like that mm-hmm. it's because they, they don't get they don't make these killers see seem charismatic and cool and i think that's the problem of those flashbacks yeah I, I mean i i actually i think the format and structure he has here like would work if he had any grip on what this story was going to do and what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a problem that I see in even, you know, currently reading uh, Night Shift for the next episode, and I'm seeing that in a lot of short stories, where I think you have that blank, that blank page syndrome, uh, where you look at it and you go, all right, let's just go. And you, you, you keep going, you're on that momentum, and then you just don't have that sort of, like, you know how you're going to, like, kind of the skeleton of it, but you really didn't really kind of... S- s- you know, figure out like how that body is going to look mm-hmm. once you start fleshing it out. And I think that this is a total, like perfect uh, example of that. And especially a really perfect example because it's clearly was written when he was younger. You know, this structure would have worked if you would have actually just kind of taken some time to really figure out who Charlie Decker is and what he, how you're going to figure that person out without it coming off is so like, um, not just cloying, but like, perfunctory yeah, like you know exactly it, it, it's very like like oh well this thing is going to like to your point you're it, like this is going to uncover this side of him and you know this short story is going to talk about his sexual repression and then this thing it's just like if you were <coughs> gone full nelson on just him being a psycho and you would have had these like things where you you have to actually glean a lot of the details versus him telling it to us like that's the mark of like i think if he would have written this maybe like like actually when this was published much better story. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, well, and like exactly what you're saying, the idea of the perfunctoriness, because um, these flashbacks exist in a structural format as a means to justify why he's doing what he's doing, to explain his psychology, and to um, endear us to him in some sense. And uh, But very few of the stories he tells, he comes from an abusive household, and that is, you know, that makes... Um, that has resonance, but some of these stories, um, what he was—he was beat up as a kid one time and kind of humiliated. Like everyone, yeah. everyone's yeah. gone through that. Um, and then my favorite flashback, where he uh, has kind of his first sexual experience, yeah. I think that really resonates yeah. for me. And I remember it really resonated for me as a teenager because I was a sexually repressed kid who was very awkward and uh, fumbly with women, and so um, I like related to that. But at the same time. 
what am I getting out of this? Well, and that's a pretty normal high school thing to happen. And, yeah. I, and I guess Rage may be, and this is getting in, in more theme and character, but I, I guess you could argue that maybe there's something to be said for all the kids talking about sex. Like, maybe that's a hard thing for high schoolers to cope with and deal with and how they're perceived by the community. But once again, I, I just don't think it has the mastery at that point to deal with those big themes in any kind of meaningful way. Instead, it's more like just you said, like, Oh, sex, haha, gross, you're a slut, you're yeah. not, all that. And everybody I mean, that. none of those girls exist in real life. Not no, one of right. them. Yeah, that's well, like exactly. not, that's not how women, girls think or talk about themselves anywhere. Yeah. The moment when um, ugly Irma uh, <laughs> has to admit to the world uh, that she accepts that she's ugly, and then they start trading makeup tips in the back of the classroom, oh, is yeah. just... So well, absurd. <laughs> along these lines, I think let's continue that by moving into uh, talking about character with um, a little section we like to call Zeros and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, Massa! <laughs> Heroes and Villains, or Zeros and Villains, is a section where we like to talk about characters. Um, that stand out, that don't stand out, that are confounding or amazing um, in uh, Stephen King books. So with Rage, who stands out? Like, well, I guess we've talked a lot about Charlie, but let's maybe Charlie start... Charlie sucks. We all Charlie agree, Charlie sucks, right? yeah. we all agree. Um, and we'll, we'll probably touch more on him as we discuss the other students, but um, let's kind of go deeper into the classroom. What characters stand out for good or bad reasons for you guys? Dan? I mean, we touched on it, but... Ted Jones, I'm not saying he's, like, a great guy, but you do, as an adult, you do, like, feel for him a little bit because yeah. of his problems, and he's never really presented as doing anything that horrible, any, any more horrible than the average high schooler, and I will say, something that I like that King does nail, um, for instance, if you watch the, the Rage Carry 2, uh-huh. the jocks are all, like... You know, comically bad. Yeah, like, these meathead, blonde hair, blue eyes, buff, whatever... Ted Jones I like because he's clean cut, but he's, yeah, he's also on the football team. He's more of like a Boy Scout, and I do think that that Stephen King nails that archetype pretty well. I feel like that's more accurate to what some an athlete, like an all-star athlete guy in a small town would be like. He also describes him as having greaser hair. Yeah. Uh, at weird, one point, yeah. like a pompadour kind of thing, which I think is interesting because one of the subjects that I've been noticing as I've been reading revisiting Stephen King, especially in Night Shift, and then, um, you know, I know in later books, too, like Henry Bowers and It, but he's really obsessed with sort of the 50s greaser oh, as yeah. bully. In The Stand, the kid is the yeah, same way. Yeah, yeah. He really, um, he's very, he, those characters that he, I don't, I feel like he must have got picked on by greasers when he was a kid because... I mean, he, he went to school in the 50s. So, yeah, because yeah, he yeah. clearly really dislikes them. <laughs> like, and then um, even, uh, wasn't kind of, who was uh, Billy Nolan... From Carrie. Was it Billy Nolan? Oh, Josh Billy. Walter. Yeah, Billy Nolan. Yeah, yeah he was like kind of like that too. He's like yeah, a he was a greaser. greaser. Yeah. Well, should be, should be noted that the book actually started in 19... He actually started writing the book in 1966. Oh, okay. Looking through the compendium. And he was in high school still. Oh, and wow. And what had happened was he didn't complete it until 1971. So he had to kind of go back and like put in like best-selling books and popular movies of the mid-70s and stuff. But... Because he wrote it in, like, the mid-60s, I wonder if that's the reason why, like, some of the characters kind of have, like, these yeah. sort of, like, you know, touches of the past still. You know, like, even if you school, read The yeah. Stand, like, the updated one, there's still, like, you know, references to, like, Neil Diamond or something. It still like feels that. like the 70s, the yeah, Stand, but... Yeah. 
I think Ted Jones. Um, I mean, would you guys even consider him a bully though? No, I don't no. Know. He, he seems like maybe he's kind of a douchebag, mm-hmm. but most people are when they're that age. Yeah. We're yeah. all dicks, and most of the time we don't even realize that we're being exactly. Dicks. Yeah. Well, it, it just seems, seems yeah. like a completely average guy who's maybe a little bit good looking mm-hmm. and feels a little bit charmed, like yeah. certain people do in high school. It's like harmless. He seems pretty harmless. And mm-hmm. and it is wrong for him to say he is gonna wear a condom when he fucks that girl and then not wearing one. That is wrong. Yes. You should not do that. Yes. That is a violation. <laughs> but I didn't do it. <laughs> but it's a relatively minor yeah. one. You know, like she obviously consented. Yeah. So it's like it, his worst crime is having premarital sex. Pre, unprotected premarital sex and taking care of his family. <laughs> exactly. How That's, dare and, he. That, and that honestly, right there, is the most realistic notion in this entire book for me. Yeah. Was the fact that, you know, I, I think I can kind of shot himself in the foot if he wanted to have himself like, yeah, no pun intended, but um, by putting this that that characteristic in the thing, because I abs- at that point, the fact that he was so selfless, it would be one thing if he didn't do it. To, help, to stop the foot, you know, if he didn't quit the football team to help his family out, or whatever. But the fact that he did, and he clearly was angry at Charlie this entire time because he's the only one that sees the reality of this situation. He's like, yeah. this guy is a fucking insane person. He, he, even, he needs to be stopped. Like, what? What is? What is wrong with you people? He like, says that at the end, right? Yeah, he's yeah. like, he's like, he killed our teacher, and he's the only one who and, says and, that. And honestly, like by making him a sympathetic, even more of a sympathetic character by just the the idea that he he quits what he is clearly good at, which was athletics, and and especially back, you know, back then, and even just now. Like, you know, athletics is a ticket for some people for a future. And the fact that he stopped and went to, you know, helped out with his mother and his family, that sympathetic, like, notions made it impossible for the ending of the story to work for me. Yeah. Because I, I did not, I, I actually was like, somebody stop these people from like, you know, like, some, you know, like, somebody stop them. Like, they, they have to, ooh, like, they stop ooh, me. Oh, <laughs> somebody <God>. stop me. <laughs> Sorry. But they, they, they had to, um, you know, I try to avoid it. But, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, you just can't fight the mask. Um, but, um, you know, I, the, the thing is, like, I, I, by him having those, the, those, are, those own admissions, it was impossible for me to, like, hear. And, yeah, I think, I think, I think um, when I try to get into the head of what Stephen King was trying to go for with Ted, um, I think what Ted represents is the establishment, right? Like mm-hmm. he represents um, uh, the life, the 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 arc, like the life arc that Charlie is trying to avoid. And I think what King is trying to get at with this kind of class of misfits, you know, is that um, the establishment, the that sort of life arc isn't that's not what these people want and they're this is a different generation and these adults the 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 therapists and the cops that are talking to him over the speakers these people don't understand what kids really want and like and what i what teenage identity is anymore and it reminds me and of course i'm not saying i'm not trying to act like this is correct no, i'm no, saying i think this is what he was going for to a degree and it reminds me of the 80s film river's edge with keanu reeves oh, and yeah. uh, crispin glover which is a movie about which is not a great movie but really interesting in just the way it explores a true story of you know kids who find out a friend of theirs killed his girlfriend who was also a friend of theirs and instead of turning him in they um try to cover up the murder and they ultimately can't even articulate to themselves why it was just kind of a sense of you know and it was you know it was kind of that reagan era um rebellion and that idea of like we've been numbed inside we've been numbed to violence we've been numbed um 
uh, to the things that used to, um, you know, the things that kind of shook our parents to the core. They don't shake us because we're different and we're lost, you yeah. know? And I feel like in, in King's mind with Rage... Charlie is trying to help people discover who they really are and not be beholden to this establishment that Ted Jones represents because Ted is so dutiful and patient uh, or um, polite with the authority figures when they talk and he always has Ted speak to them. And um, and the, I think when they all descend on Ted at the end, it's supposed to be a sign of like rejecting the establishment and rejecting sort of, you know, uh, the lives our parents lived. And, in then, a he, weird and way. then he's interned at a... Fucking mental. Level. He's comatose yeah. at the end. Yeah, right? he's comatose. Like he, the, they, they the want. They're talking about whether or not they're going to have to give him shock treatment. Oh boy, and Jeez. it's and it's just. And, Where and is it's... Chief Brandon when you need? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a leap. I thought that was a leap. Yeah, like yeah. like this. I, I get it. Like your class is turning you to beat you up, whatever. You're gonna like become like you know the ending of a one flew of the cuckoo's nest. Like, no, because it of, no. feels really dishonest. Wait, and, and, and also, I'm sorry. This this guy has bigger problems than a girl dug her heel into his foot. Exactly. If he's, if he's 17 years old, however old he is, supporting his family because his mother has crippling alcohol addiction, yeah. he has bigger problems. Yeah. What, what do you what do you guys speaking of like the the girls in the novel? I mean, we talked a little bit about this already, but I mean, do any of them resonate for you, like Sandra Cross or? or um, um, yeah. No. So, I mean, I feel bad for them because they're put in a position that they all have to talk about whether they're virgins or not, yeah. yep. or whether they're pure or not, don't they say or whether they're sex, pretty like, or not. Uh, yeah. Um, it really... And then there's the weird thing where Sandra all of a sudden gets like a glittering <laughs> and is staring off into space and is like I fucked Ted once yeah. <laughs> it, it just it doesn't make it's, it doesn't make any sense at all uh. the most compelling moment is when uh, Grace Grace the slut yeah. Yeah. Uh, stands up for herself One and then he the completely sluts. tanks it by turning it into a like a Caucasian chalk circle slap fight. Yeah. It's oh, that's right. He makes them like He duel. makes them fight each other. Oh, boy. Mouths and open hands only. It's funny because when we did The Shining, for instance, and I wasn't here for Salem's Lot, but but I listened to it and edited it. There's those books, and, they're, and they're, it's a bigger cast of characters for Salem's Lot, but even with The Shining, where it's more insular, we had like tons of characters. We were like, oh, no, that guy's great. Oh, this is cool. I want to talk yeah. about this. I'm, I'm not joking. Rage, I'm like, I don't know who else I really gravitate to. I kind of like Pigpen. Pigpen's kind of good. He's, yeah, he's With a noble With the pencils guy. and yeah, he had like pissed weird... about his dirty shirts. and He had like little, little, uh, sister. like ticks that sort of like made him stand out at least. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of the women, you're like, you're so right. And we'll talk about this more in Pound Cake, but it's like, because <laughs> I got quotes. But, <laughs> but like, he. And I, it makes sense to the character in the sense that teenage boys, they do look at women sexually constantly. They do. They, they judge them did, that yeah. way. But it's written in a sense where it's like, hey, boobs, right? You know, like, isn't that awesome? Like, but literally every woman is looked at in that way and judged in that way. And once again, that would not be a problem if, and look, it was the 70s. <clears throat> things are a lot different now, whatever else. But once again, it comes down to that, the hugest problem of the book is that we're not meant to be critical of that element of Charlie. Like, okay, maybe yep. we're kind of like, all right, maybe he shouldn't. That's us relating teacher. to him. Exactly. That's that's the problem. Like all all the awful things about Charlie is are, are things that the class is relating to. And once again, it's not smart enough to be looking at the class like, oh no, these kids are all wrong. Like the there's just that little glimmer at the end where Ted Jones really briefly is like, 
no, what's wrong with you? He killed someone. But I don't think that's the final thesis of the book. You no. know, I think that's. No. Uh, I, I don't. I think at the end. I mean, even in the very end. Right, for for instance, you know, at the end of Taxi Driver, where Travis Bickle, you know, kills all these people. Yeah. And he's being lauded as a, a hero and getting these letters. I've always gotten that. That's a comment on how sick society can be and how how we make heroes out of these people who don't deserve to be heroes and how we have this obsession with violence. Now, King could have gone that way with Charlie Decker in the end, but when he gets those letters like, oh yeah, man, everyone's talking about what you did. That's so cool. I don't think that's supposed to be a moment of satire. I think that's just like, no, I mean, Charlie really did. Yeah, (laughs) that's the vibe I got too. It feels like what he's saying is society has pushed these kids that all they can do to feel alive is turn to this sort of grotesque violence and sex and that's what they have to do to break free of the chains put on them by people who require them to have jobs. God, I sound so old right now. What what about the adults? Honestly, I have such such trouble distinguishing like I said, like I confused the therapist and the cop earlier because they're written so They're all these bumbling like, they're just all bumbling morons. And then Charlie always says something like, I don't know, what about you going down your wife? Like, well, you motherfucker, I'll kill you. Yeah, it's so bad. I I don't know, man. I'm feeling like it's a thin here, zeros and villains because there's just there. A lot of zeros. A lot of zeros. No, and I think, oh, wait. You brought up a good point about uh, Charlie's friend, though. Yes, I was actually about to bring that up. Uh, the character that I probably find most compelling is one we never see but hear about a lot, which is uh, Joe McKennedy, yeah. right? And that's um, kind of Charlie's childhood friend who... Um, he writes the letter in the end. Yeah, and he yeah. writes the letter and we were discussing, you guys reminded me about the letter because I was saying earlier that I would. I, it's almost easy to think throughout the story that Joe is somebody who Charlie has grown apart from because mm-hmm. Joe seems to have his life together and to be a pretty upstanding, cool guy. Um, like when they go to that party together, like the women <laughs> love Joe. Like, and well, it's when like, he gets to date white underpants Sandra. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. And we know she just gives it away. She loves it. Going behind the skating rink. Yeah, and, uh, but or bowling like, alley. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, it's like you can tell that Charlie really. I feel like the most human moments I saw with Charlie were kind of the moments when he was in admiration of Joe, and you could tell he really looked up to him, and he really saw him as a good friend. And um, but I thought it would have been more interesting if you know the way you do grow apart from people some of them I had friends when I was in school who you know like whether they got into drugs or they um you know kind of got a little too much into I don't even know just like stuff that I wasn't into people grow apart that's just what happens and so I thought it would have been very interesting if he talks about Joe like he's his best friend but they don't really have a relationship anymore but then you guys reminded me in the end Joe does write him that letter that's very familiar and so you know again it just kind of feels like I, I mean, I almost don't even like that letter because I like the Hate idea. It. I like the idea of Joe just being um, a separate entity, like somebody who doesn't, who is, um, I don't know, who exists as sort of this kind of ideal for Charlie. Well, the way that Joe is presented, the type of guy he is, like you said, he's charmed in the way that Ted is, but without some of the baggage, I think. I almost feel like a guy like that in real life, if that happened, he would probably just distance himself yeah. from Charlie. I don't, th- that lettering so false to me. I would, I would ra- either rather have him not at all, you know, be in, in, in the end of the book or the letter. What if the final, the final letter was like telling Charlie, like, what the fuck, man? Why, yeah. why do you do this? Instead that would have been interesting. I kind of dated Sandra a few times. By the way, she says hi. Yeah. It's like, what? Oh, There's also so this gross. one really strange line in the letter which is, maybe you know what happened to Pigpen. No one in town can believe it. 
about him and Dick Keen. Following has been censored as possibly upsetting to patients, so you never can tell what people are going to do, can you? So wait, what is that saying exactly? Who knows? I was assuming maybe they were gay? Yeah. Yeah, Maybe, I guess. That's weird, yeah. But whatever it is would be upsetting to patients. And we had also talked about the idea that maybe Charlie was kind of nursing uh, romantic feelings for Joe. Which, oh, that's that could be true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Charlie's kind of a cad throughout, so but he also can't, you know, he's not aroused when he's with the woman on the beach, so maybe he is dealing with some weird repressed sexuality, and he is very wistful when mm-hmm. speaking about Joe. So, I mean, that could be interesting, but it, I don't feel like it's really touched There's on. There's another part that's that's censored. Gracie Stanner. Grace the slut. Grace the, <laughs> Grace the slut. That cute little chick. Is that going to get married, shit. and that's also a local sensation. It boggles the mind. Following has been censored as possibly upsetting to patient. Anyway, you can never tell what sort of monkey shines people are going to get up monkey to, right? Why is he, he keeps ending all these stories with, and you can never tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I, I will say this for the characters as, as a collective. He, once again, does do a good job of painting the mythology of a small town. I think, like, even in his worst books, I think Stephen King will always be good at that. Yeah. Uh, although a ca- the character's rank falls to me, like, as individuals within the classroom, the world itself... Is it in Harlow? I can't remember. What's the, the book, the or the town that um, um, that we're in? I think it is I Harlow, remember. right? Do you know, Mike? Yeah. Either way, I think, I think King does... I think King does do a good job of, okay, it, it makes sense why these people are in a town together and, and when they talk about their memories of the skating rink and whatever else, like it feels like a real place even if the people within it don't yeah. feel amazing. Yeah. I'd say that's true. And, you know, I guess like if we're just talking about what one of the, I think one of the parts I responded to most was I felt like King did a really good job of sort of like painting the picture of the classroom and how hot it was and mm-hmm. sort of like, I felt like it was claustrophobic in a very good way. But um, yeah, it's like, and it's so funny to say that there's bad, that these are bad characters because like literally in the worst Stephen King books, there's always characters to really glom onto or get excited about. Yeah. They can, they can, there's always ones that feel a little bit cheesy. Oh yeah. You know, but like, I think that in this book, they, they don't feel cheesy. They don't feel, um, well drawn. They kind of just feel defined by a few broad factors, um, and you know, inconsistent behaviors. I mean, I mean, I, I guess like what really grosses me out is just like, it seems like all the, uh, like, the way he further sexualizes the women is, like, they all seem like they want to fuck him because yeah. he shot the teacher. <laughs> like, there's a part when, um, when, uh, he, like, look, he just, out of nowhere, he looks at Sylvia because, um, oh, the, Phil Burke says that, uh, Charlie's on a hair, trigger. yeah, uh, he's, like, a hair trigger or whatever, and then, um, he looks at Sylvia and he goes, want to pull my trigger? And then she goes, is your safety on? She asked right back, and the class roared. <laughs> and Lasky laughed with her hands over her mouth, blushing a deep, bright red. Ted Jones, our practicing party poop, scowled. Oh, because man. Ted is a bad, bad man. Oh, boy. Anyways, uh, any more thoughts Play- on characters? Placerville, Maine. Sorry. Placerville. Placerville, Maine. Yeah. That's a weird name. Yeah. Sluts, am I right? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, any other thoughts on character? I, I did think, like, Pinkpen's story about his mother was kind of weird. What? How so? Like, like, well, I mean, just the... It goes into, like, King's thing with, like, fascination with, like, these kind of... Um, uh, overbearing mothers. Yeah. You know? And that is fathers. such a consistent thing that I never yeah. really noticed until you, I think 
one you guys brought up during um, during the Shining. I can't remember. I think it was the Shining. Yeah, because yeah. of, of uh, Wendy's mother. Yeah, and, I, it's and then a, it is Susan's a, mom and and Susan's mom. Sam's Sam's lot. Lot. Yeah, and there's then a obviously thing Carrie him. Margaret White. Yeah, which is funny because like he had a really good relationship with his own mother. So yeah, it's like and yeah. a good relationship. Well, his father kind of was out of the picture. Yeah, right? yeah, absentee. And because yeah. he writes a lot about abusive dads. Yeah, yeah. and um, did anyone else picture Pigpen like Pigpen from Peanuts? Yes. Yes. Well, as a long time Peanuts, you're a Peanuts scholar. Love Peanuts. <laughs> I, 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 I like the idea that he uh, put Pigpen uh, as, a, as a name in here, uh, but don't want to really see Pigpen in the story. Well, because I mean, the, the problem is because I associate that so much with, I mean, that's a drag peanuts reference, and it's, a, it's also like not a, uh, I don't know, it's not an obscure enough nickname to be, you know, interesting to me. I just pictured like this dust cloud in the back of the yeah, class. Yeah, I pictured today. sort of a, a human boy with a dirty shirt with lines just yeah, floating around. Lines. Also, for being not a bully, why the fuck don't we ever get Pigpen's actual name? Yeah. Why yeah. is he the one that's called an offensive name the whole way through? Yeah, I, I, I poor do, guy. I, I do think that the that there is something to Charlie's fascination with Ted, though, and I think that I think is so too. like I really like uh, there. You know, the idea that he he has like this. He likens him to a butterfly collector at one point. Um, he talks which, about how handsome he is. All he the time. always talks about how handsome he is. He there's even a line where he says. Um, uh, he goes, you could see I'm fixed on Ted. Why not? I'm still trying to figure him out. And like, yeah, you could make, you know, he's like, you could make the idea, the argument that like Ted's this kind of complex character. Um, I mean, arguably he is the most complex character in this story. I think so. Um, so maybe that's, you know, Charlie, you, you can make the argument like, yeah, of course Charlie would be fixated on him. But then you have like the whole like sexual repression that, that comes into play with his, his, uh, the situation that happens on the beach yeah. and you know so clearly he has and then like the co- sort of sexual connotations of him having to you know go to the bathroom while his dad was being talking about being violent against women like there's a lot of like you know because he talks about how he doesn't want to like pull out his like his you know his penis when he has to go peeing and stuff yeah. like that like i think there's a lot of weird like not weird, but just a lot of subtext there about where sexuality could be kind of tied to why he is, like, why he decides to go off on this, like, you know. And I think that's something that when you're young, it's so hard to articulate. Yeah. And obviously he had trouble articulating it because if, I think you're right in that sexuality is a big factor um, in why he's doing what he's doing, but the stories he tells still end up being just so mm-hmm. That's uh, the problem. It gets, it gets submarined by all this other useless crap in the yeah, you know? But Because, uh, I mean, it could be Stephen King's own 16 Blue if he... Uh, I know, <laughs> right? Was, that's true. Like, if he, would, if he had uh, had a little more nuance. 16 Blue is a song off of uh, The Replacements, Let It Be. A great song. <laughs> uh, one of the best solos uh, Bob Stinson ever uh, uh, well, to recordings. Well, you know, guys, <laughs> I feel like whistling because we're walking by the cemetery. Ooh. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. And uh, let's just say that this is going to be in uh, the particular section of the cemetery where they have uh, a lot of uh, grass 
and there's no there's no plots yet uh, because <laughs> there isn't that much to be scared of here other than this writing. Um, um, yeah, I, this is the section where we like talk about uh, no you know the scariest parts of the book, the kills that were most disturbing, um, and things of that nature. Uh, and as you can probably imagine, this isn't really. This isn't really a horror novel. No. Um, and it's a thriller, I guess. I guess it's a, th eh. a psychological <laughs> thriller. Yeah, there aren't many traditional horror moments. The Well, the, when they descend on Tad. Yeah, but it's like scary for the raw. It's more scary that Stephen King like thinks this is a proper ending, I guess. I, I was a little unnerved by... Uh, we talked a lot about Charlie's repressed sexuality. He, he has that... that um, the instance where he can't get it up with the that one girl at that party. That one slut. The, that, that one. Slut. That, that one hippie slut. Um, but uh, <laughs> no. The, but then he does. He has a nightmare about was it his mom getting killed or something, mm -hmm. and he wakes up with like an erection, and that oh, gave, yeah, that, that was... gave some insight into Charlie, and also once again that goes back to this idea that I wish King would have stuck with more, where it's not. It's this weird, unexplained thing that he doesn't go too much into. And I think if we had had more of that, um, it would have been a more effective book. But that, that was one moment for me that struck out as being... I'd say the little... Cherokee nose job story as well, just along those lines yeah. of like things that... Images that have been placed in Charlie's head that give you kind of an uh, insight into sort of how fractured his mind is. Yeah. You know, that's like kind of yeah. something that clearly sticks with him. But outside like, of that, though... I, I guess it was kind of scary when they, the bullet shot his heart. And I was worried that oh, the he might have died, and then I wouldn't have been able to hear the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, like, what's going to happen? We're not going to be able to figure out what happens. Like, uh, Ted's going to get home. Like, I was, I was a, a little bit disturbed by two moments. One is when he finally talks about hitting his teacher with the pipe wrench. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. was... That's, that's yeah. Because it violent. feels like it just comes out of nowhere. Like, And yeah. this is... um. Uh, both sort of a positive thing, but mostly a dig, and that it feels a lot like the scene in The Sixth Sense where uh, Haley Joel Osment yells stuttering Stanley, Stanley. Yes. right? Yes. Only that is a small child, yeah. and it feels yeah. honest to an actually tormented child being treated in a, a pretty inappropriate and, uh, manner by a teacher as opposed to a guy being like, why do you have this pipe wrench? And then he gets smashed in the yeah. face with the pipe wrench. Which is a playwright, Bruce Norris, in uh, The Sixth Sense, isn't it? Yeah, he, he, he is. Stanley? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he wrote uh, Cladwarm Park, Painting the Itch. All yeah. right, all and right. his stuttering comes back in that scene, too, because he's like, what, what, what? Shut up, you <laughs> freak! Um, like. The other moment that got me uh, is when they all descend on Ted, there's a specific description of... Uh, I think it's Carol, one of the girls, mm -hmm. digging her heel into his foot, and you hear something yeah, snap. That yeah, gross. yeah, that's kind of gross. Yeah, that real, and then he starts calling him Ted thing because he's just laying there. Oh like, yeah, Ted that's kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah. The, so that got me. The and the uh, pipe wrench moment. It, the thing that did kind of jar me a little bit in a good way was because he, remember he keeps hitting the chalkboard when he swings it back. Yeah. Yeah. That was Chunks like are flying out. Yeah, that was really unnerving to me and. And once again, I think that's scary because Charlie doesn't give a full monologue about why he did that. He was just kind of like, I came to school with this wrench, I did it, and that was it. He's not like, oh, well, uh, sit back and I'll regale you with a tale of why I, I did this. There was a point where I was absolutely, like, um, nervous that he was going to shoot Irma. Yeah. Like, there were a couple of moments like that, yeah. He does the line of questioning. And I was like, oh my god, is this going to be when it turns and he's going to shoot this kid? And like, you know, and then the kids are still not going to be, you know, shocked at this. But 
I that was the only point where I, I I was actually like flipping the pages like oh my gosh what is this where is this going to lead and then it doesn't do anything yeah um, and that was really the only time I like other felt tense because and again the problem is because I, I never believe any of this is real like it doesn't yeah. feel real to me like I you know I I managed to and one thing I did actually wanted to to present as a question is like did you guys like picture your own school like no. in high school for this I didn't I, I didn't did. I, I actually had a particular classroom I had the the, the teachers that I uh, imagined I don't know what that says about me but <laughs> there, there yeah. was like because I like the idea of like being like the lined of the lined of like windows and being able to see yeah. the lawn like I, I, there was like. You know that I did picture that, and like that was kind of jarring. I, I also went. Way. I went to the a lot of schools in Florida are like this. My high school was kind of um, outside almost. Yeah, I, I, that's same here. It didn't. So yeah. I didn't have. But we didn't have a lot of. Um, it like it wasn't always outside. Exactly. Yeah. So it, I actually you know what I pictured. Um, now that I'm thinking about it. It was more like the classroom in Halloween where yes. Laurie is sitting there and she sees Michael Myers. I think because the book, and this is one other thing I did like about the book, like you said, it does seem very late 60s, early 70s to me. And so I think I, I whenever I think of 70s schools, I think of that thing. of yeah. just like the very, a blackboard here, yeah. wooden desks, like with maybe the, 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 the old like, like silver, like rolling out the windows with the screen. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. The, the pencil sharpener yeah. you had to crank and all that. And, and picture the classrooms from X-Men. Yeah. yeah. Oh really? <laughs> I was <laughs> really? Kidding. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, right? I didn't, until you brought it up, I didn't realize it, but I think I was picturing the classrooms from 112263. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Which um, makes sense. Yeah, which yeah. is fresh in my mind. Yeah. Um, not when he's teaching in the present, but when he's teaching in <clears throat> the past. You need to watch 1122. I, I really did, I did struggle James trying James Franco is surprisingly good at Like, it. just Franco. coming up with the reality of this and trying to figure out, you know, it's, it's so easy for us to, for at least in the previous books that we've read so far, being able to come up with the setting and then the characters and seeing these things interact. And for me, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very slow with reading sometimes is because I sit there and I try to picture it and I'm like putting everything in, in place. Like even this little small things. In this book, I I definitely leaned on some some of the stuff from like my high school like experiences and stuff. But even outside that, it's so hard to actually mm-hmm. believe any of this is happening because it's so just removed from any reality. You know, we've seen because the problem is it's it, it's the same thing that um, Justin has a he's a fellow loser um, on the <laughs> Losers Club. He has a problem watching like the the, the People versus O.J. Simpson because he he lived it. Yeah, like he saw that happening on the news. The, the news channel, and he was, he was old, old enough, enough to to yeah. really understand it. And that's kind of the problem I have with this book is because I was we were all old enough to know that how Columbine happened. We saw it live on TV. We saw the Sandy Hook things happen. We saw these other things happen. Like I don't think we need. I think because we've had those real life experiences, and this is so far removed from any of the uh, uh, any like sort of reaction to that. I mean, we've seen live footage of kids running away from the shooters because of the Columbine things like that that happened. We've seen the security monitors happen. We know that the kids aren't going to be sitting here and We know how a classroom chummy. acts when yeah. something yeah. like and, this and, and for me, that's why this move, this book was never scary or never anything no. because I was like, none of this is could yeah. even be conceivably real. Well, whenever, whenever you hear about a school shooting in real life, even though the circumstances surrounding them have all been very different, like Sandy Hook was way different than Columbine as far as the planning and the, you know, how it went down and all that, um... But the one consistent thing you hear from all these shootings, you never hear about, like, kids leaving other kids behind or siding with the shooters or no. just sitting no. there. The one consistent thing is that you always hear about these acts of bravery of kids and yeah. teachers kind of escaping and, and fighting back against us, and some of them don't make it, and, and that's really sad. 
Yeah, the moment that feels most dishonest in the whole book to me is when the girl goes to the bathroom and then comes back. Exactly. Oh because it God. seems to Jesus, me that, yeah. that King is trying to say that maybe there's some sort of, like, I, the most charitable interpretation of that bullshit is that there's a kind of Stockholm syndrome yeah. happening, but it's just not justified at all. No, no, there's no all. way that girl comes back. Come on. He's no. got a gun. He it, just they're, all going her. Na- they're all going nuts. She, there's no way she comes back. Oh, man. No. What, I, I have a question for you guys. So, like I said, the version of the Bachman books I have, and when they did the, it's the paperback version of the one Mike has, they published the original covers, the Bachman covers, in the front of each story. And as we always discussed before, um, the Rage one is, it's a desk, and you see the teacher's dead legs um, coming from off camera, and then Charlie's sitting there, oh, you really? know, with this smirk oh, on his face. Oh, pull it up, yeah. He's I looking think I have cool the Wikipedia as hell. And so, and, yeah. he, and his face looks so punchable, and he looks like such a smarmy douchebag. <laughs> so, and he looks so right? 70s, he's got oh, his, oh, it's awful. He, he looks... <laughs> Who wants to talk next? Uh, so, <laughs> me, me, me. fuck you, Charlie. <laughs> seeing that in my Bachman Books edition, I just picture him like that, and it made me hate him even more. I'm like, fuck this guy, he sucks, and... <laughs> It was just... I, I, I want to say... All right, so this was published in the 77. I... You know, what was... I cannot remember the name of the goddamn movie. But it's... it's There's a 70s film where kids are... They, they run out... They take over the school. It was in the Montage of Heck documentary. The they, Wave? They t- is the, it The Wave? Or no? No, it was... Which? Taps? It might be Taps. Tom Cruise? Is Tom Cruise in it? No, it's like Tom a military Cruise in it, though. Yeah. No, no. It's, it's, it's like a high school that gets taken over by kids... Like, Toy Soldiers? All the kids, not, not, no, but this soldiers. is like in the seventies. <laughs> Love Toy Soldiers, also. Yeah. Um, I, the guy, I think the guy from um, uh, Gordon from Sesame Street's in it. Um, oh, really? Oh, I think so. I think we need to start um, a podcast about it. But uh, <laughs> but they also have a. Uh, um, uh, Sean Astin and uh, um, Gordy Lo- uh, whatever we're not going off on Toy Soldiers <laughs> over the edge it might be over the edge oh yeah I think, I think it is one. I actually think it is over the edge yeah. does this look right uh, that might be it yeah okay. yeah like I, it's, I just remember seeing it in like the, the, the Matt Dillon vein, uh, montage of Heck do- documentary yeah is Matt Dillon in it I feel I, like Matt Dillon has a lot of it was Matt Dillon's film debut oh it might be then it might be, I, I just, be it, it was just like this idea that the, you know, in, in rock and roll high school, the Ramones thing is also similar. Of this, like, yeah, kids are gonna ba- like band together and they're gonna take over the the you know the whole thing. And it's like that's and and and, and not that's the a case. very like, that's a very um, the way the kids talked. It was such the seventies thing of like, yeah, man, can you dig it? We're kids. We're not gonna take this shit. <laughs> Parents so, just don't understand. Oh, it's so yeah. lame. It, it, that's lame on its own. And then throw this thing of like a cool school shooter in there. Well, oh, and just like uh, and, uh, we haven't really touched on this, but just yeah, the book was originally called. You mentioned it, but like getting it on. And Charlie just says so many times. He's like, he's like, uh, he's like, uh, well, this, my friends, is called. Getting it on. It doesn't at one point the principal ask, what's getting it on? They say something like sticking it or something. Oh, it's <laughs> it's so like, bad. It's, we well, have on that, one thing left to do. We have to get it on. On that uh, on that note, I think it's time to serve up a little dish of uh, what I like to call pound cake. Ah! <laughs> After all you've been talking, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mama. You like him. You really like him, mama. Uh, this is a section where we like to kind of just poke a little fun at um, at moments in Stephen King books that you know where things maybe got a little blue is one way to phrase it. I'm eating an Oreo while we're doing this, not, not <laughs> actual pound cake, but a red velvet Oreo, and I love velvet. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, um, and then uh, I think that 
there's not there. I think that where a lot of this manifests is just in kind of the rampant sexualization that Charlie has. The treatment has of, of the sex, women. not the actual and the language. treatment of sex, which is really gross. Um, and uh, here's just we're we're just gonna kind of uh, talk about a few examples, but I've got a few selections. I'm just gonna read right here. Oh, so, um, talking about Ted Jones, um, he he sees Irma looking at Ted, and he says. And I bet his was the face that Irma Bates called up in her mind when she sneaked a cucumber out of the refrigerator in the wee <laughs> hours of the night. It's like, and I remember reading this going, completely unnecessary. Like, he totally, that is, I'm just saying, it's like, that line is gross, but he also <laughs> says it for no reason. Also, alright, if you want to imply that, fine. First off, why can't it just be like, Oh, I suspected that, but you know, she had a thing for him, or, or she she fantasized about him or this. Why a cucumber <laughs> in the middle of the night? Like I'm gonna what? Oh, I'm just jonesing for it. I could just sit here and do it. No, I'm gonna go grab a Gotta fucking get the cucumber. Ugh. Note: pretty clear evidence that a young Stephen King had absolutely no idea how women masturbate. I was yes. gonna say like, I don't think cute using a cucumber is like. Oh, that's so, uh, and I love to. And, I've seen it in a bunch of comedies. <laughs> you know, maybe I mean, like Rob Reiner kind of comedy. Spinal Tap, like that, he but... puts the cucumber in his pants he to does. simulate. Well, that. I mean, this one time at band camp. <laughs> yeah, like, man. nah. Uh, a um, cucumber. Jesus here is a Christ. sign of like a line that Stephen King probably wrote when he was 17 that he just never really edited out. Uh, when he's on the beach with the woman, uh, I could feel her bare thigh. I began to get horny as a bull moose. <laughs> bull moose? What the fuck? What about the, the, the obsession? I mean, he, he's, we have already noted that he's, you know, he's obsessed with breasts, as Elaine Bettis would say. But he loves, uh, I, I gotta say, when, when he's up there on the typewriter, he absolutely loves cardigans with breasts. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's like, it's such a, rep, 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 like, a repetition at this point. That well, it's who like, doesn't? Come on. Well, I mean, I love cardigans. The, and I like the band nice. cardigans better than C- card- cardigans. Cardigans are, right. were, are... Had popularity in the seventies, right? I don't know. It was the seventies. Yeah, I guess it's a, like a, a, you know, it's a thing. But it's just, it, it's it's like the recurring thing. It's you know, I know we all have our own vices and stuff, but <laughs> it's very interesting to see him like continue to go with it. And he always talks about the size of breasts too, like as yes. if this has any sort of like like in Carrie, like in Carrie, I remember every single female character, oh, yeah. that, like even the smallest ones, have to have the size of their breasts yeah. described. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, um, it just doesn't make sense. Some are big, some are small. You know, he's got to talk about it. No oh, reason. No Stephen reason. King, he loves them all. Yeah, got, exactly. Yeah. And then I've got I've got a, uh, another quote here. Uh, speaking of breasts, uh, Grace, Grace the slut. <laughs> Grace looked at the class, then looked at me. Her breasts were very full, pushing up the soft fabric of her sweater. It just why would he be saying that? And then know. he also does it with Sylvia too. I, I didn't write it down, but it's like he talks about how big her boobs are. Maybe too. the horny is a bull moose thing. Going back to that. I don't know, are there a lot of moose in, in Maine? It's the vacation state. Are bull moose a thing? I've never heard of I mean, a bull I, I think moose. a bull moose would be like a male moose. Like, okay, a, like the gotcha. bull, the bull. But I don't, I mean. We all I, know men get the horns. Do you have, <laughs> do you have my favorite grace line in your roundup there? Um, I don't think I do. What's that? My mom fucks and I love her. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. My mom fucks. My mom fucks. And I love her. Oh, um, I mean, he even can't even talk about the fire chief without going, they stood irresolutely uh, irresolutely, oh, fuck it. Um, they stood irresolutely, ir- <laughs> <laughs> whatever. He talks about the fire chief and how their nozzles were gripped and held out before them like comic brass phalluses. <laughs> like, I mean, like, you could have said, like, they're holding fire hoses. 
They look like dongs. Yeah, like, just seems... Oh, man. And then, um, what's... I got another good one here. Well, this is one that just kind of pisses me off. Um, he was... He was, uh, it's when he's telling, he told us a story you were, t- we were talking about earlier about him going to the Carol Granger's party, uh, birthday party when they were young. And when he comes out of it, uh, he says the shame on her face was alarming talking about Carol and how he had just told this story and, you know, and she's so sorry, you know? And, um, uh, he says, I hadn't told that story to shame her. And she goes, I was just a kid, Charlie. And he goes, I know that. I said and smiled. You were awfully pretty that day. You sure didn't look like a kid. Yeah. What the fuck? There's also a line in that section about how, because he was 12, so she was presumably also 12, about how she looked 15 or 16 already because she was already filling out. It's just like, it's just like, he has no reason to say that except to be a complete fucking lech. Like, you were awful pretty that day. You sure didn't look like a kid. Like, why are you saying this to her, like, when she's 16 years old? Like, like, that's really creepy. It's interesting in Rage. And it's not presented in a way where it's supposed to be creepy. It's it's interesting in Rage because there's not as much in-the-moment sex stuff like there was in Salem's Lot and The Shining with, you know, seed drying on thighs or whatever else. (laughs) But it, yeah, it's more it's more the the teenage gaze, I guess. Which once again, if it, the book was subversive and commenting on that, that could be one thing. But it's really not. I think I think you brought up a good point, Randall. He wrote started writing this book in high school, and I think a lot of that is residue. Ew, no pun intended. Left <laughs> left left over from sure. his his seventeen year old mind. It's just very curious to me how oh, literally man. the whole last third of the book just really becomes about shaming Ted. You yeah, know, yeah. like really aggressively so, and in the process, and like I, I really like what you were saying just about like the virginal aspects of like Sandra and like talking, and then you were talking about like he talks about her panties all the time. Oh yeah, her white panties. Her white panties. He fantasizes about her white panties, and then. Because he didn't ask her to the winter formal, she went with Ted instead, and that's where he actually thinks about shooting Ted, because Ted got it on with white pants Santa, yeah. and right? Like, and then she wears a sheer blouse and her shortest skirt, and she goes to the roller ring to get fucked, and then has an <laughs> orgasm from apparently just the thought of sex? Yeah, wait, all right, so I had a question about that part, because the way he phrases that is really weird. She just sa- she says... Oh, and he, it, like, before he even got any touch, he just, like, rubbed down my thigh, and I went. He, she, she says it like, I went. She peed. Yeah, well, no, that's what I thought at first. <laughs> oh, like, I don't wait, think what? so. No, no, I think you're right. Like, I think that but... she comes, and then he does, too, and yeah. she, and he says, you did it on purpose. No, yeah, no, be, like, and, I, and I think that's, like, accurate, but I'm just, maybe I'm really naive. Have you guys, is that a 70s thing, like, oh, and I went? Like, I don't know, that just sounded like a funny... I just those... like the idea of, like, I went pee-pee. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, just a weird, it was just a weird way to phrase it. I just, by the time I got to the end of the passage, I was like, oh, okay, I see what you meant. Sure. I had to reread it for a second, like, wait, what? And, and like, you know, I think that, I actually think if you portrayed Charlie as a total creep, and he was saying, I wanted to kill... Ted because he got to bang the girl that I fantasize about. That's a very honest thing. Yeah. But yeah. you're not... He. It's like, in the stand, he, that's what Harold is. Harold wants to kill Stu because Stu is with And Harold Freddy. is criticized And Harold is a villain in the book. And, like, well, that's presented as being, like, well, that's awful. You mm-hmm. know? And I... Because that's, you know, grown-up, assured, good writer king. And here <laughs> I think this is still, like, you know, a man who is not fully in control of his emotions and <laughs> wanting to hate people for getting the thing that they feel they're entitled to. It's and that's neck, what it's really And for soiling the good girl. Yeah, soiling because, the Because, by the way, if you have sex and you're a woman and it's not with 
whatever man is supposed to be the good one, that means you're a dirty whore. Well, my yeah. mom fucks, but I still love her. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, he, uh, we're, you know, we've got some extraneous ones here I want to point out. <laughs> Mike loves pound cake. Um, they love pound cake, but I, I didn't, sadly, I uh, was borrowing uh, um, Sir Justin's uh, copy of the Bachman book, so I couldn't underline it because he would get angry at me. Um, but so I'm, 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 you know, rummaging through uh, uh, some of the paragraphs. There's some really weird ones. You know, like he, he discusses uh, the adults outside. He says, out in the lawn, the cops and Tom Denver and Mr. Johnson were standing around restlessly waiting for the return of their Tweety Bull stud. Read my dreams, Sigmund. Squirt them with the sperm of symbols and make them grow. Show, show me how we're different from, say, rabid dogs or old tigers full of black blood. Show me the man hiding behind, between... Hide, no, wait. Show me the man hiding between my wet dreams... <laughs> I can imagine him writing that in his dorm room and being like, "Babe, Tabby, you gotta hear this." Like, and also he, later on, he goes, "Mr. Gray sounded like a very small child, helpless, hopeless. I had made him fuck himself with his own big tool, like one of those weird experiences you read about in the penthouse forum. I had taken off his witch doctor's mask and made him human, but I didn't hold it against him. To her, is only human, but it's divine to forgive." I believe that sincerely, and like you know, God, what that, an asshole! And like, there's a part where like <laughs> the part where you like he's talking to him, and he's like he like unbuttoned my shirt cuffs, like I'm gonna go to business, like like seriously, I hate this like, guy. He just thinks that he just thinks that he's enlightening everybody, and yeah. that he's schooling everybody, and the, that's my main problem with the book is just that there is no the criticism levied towards Charlie is so slight that like we're really supposed to be on his side here. It's such a balance of like what makes a good writer and what makes a great writer, yeah. You know? And King just wasn't there yet. Yeah. Like, obviously, we are huge fans of him, but man, this is a bad book. And it's amazing to me that he was comfortable with it being published. Yeah, well, and then eventually I think he made the right choice. But well, yeah, I think was, so, too. Yeah. yeah. Any other pound cakes that we want to share? I think, you know, or, we... There's the one reference to how her pubic hair was nine shades darker than her bleach job. <laughs> nice. Remember that one? <laughs> that, that one is the hippie beach slut, oh. by the way, for those of you tracking the sluts In the short, short dress. Yes. Hippie beach slut. <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm sorry, constant listeners, but I, uh, I just don't have, uh, I don't have them underlined this time. I think but, we had plenty know, of pound cake. Yeah, I had, yeah, I had, had plenty little, of pieces of pound cake. Everyone had a bite. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. This is usually the section of the show where we, we talk about the way that um, stories sort of uh, connect to the larger universe of Stephen King. As we all know, uh, The Dark Tower connects many Stephen King books. And um, so here's a question. Is Rage connected to any other King works? They, I don't know if it's connected to the bigger universe other than that. Dark Tower technically connects all Stephen King books, but there are little things um, that I noticed. For instance, uh, Charlie Decker has a post of Rita Hayworth in his locker, oh, which obviously yeah. comes into play later on. Now, that's not a... That's just a shared detail. Sure. Um, there are other things. I mean, there's some similar names. The, we already touched on a, the teacher Underwood. His last name was Lair Underwood in The Stand. Um, so I just realized Sandra Cross is also... Is she, is she a relative of Nadine Cross? Ooh, Who knows? Interesting. 
Um, there are some towns that are mentioned, although, um, as we said earlier, this does not take place in Harlow, but they mention Harlow, which is in Under the Dome and a, and a few other books. What, if, mention... what if in the Castle Rock trailer when they were, like, doing the thing, like, <laughs> saying all the, like, Danny Torrance, Charlie you know? Decker. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie Decker. Decker. No, like, wait, I, I don't recognize that. Wait, wait, I feel like that, that line huh? in uh, Wayne's World is like, after American Digest, I don't yeah. recognize that. It won several awards. It won several awards. Um, <laughs> there, there, I do have one more. Yeah. Um, I, I, or one that, that also is interesting. According to uh, our favorite book by uh, Stanley Wyatter, uh, Christopher Golden, and Hank Wagner. Oh, Hank, uh, like a dog. Hank, my dog. Um, good, good job. The complete Stephen King universe. Uh, they say, Charlie's father admires the crime novels of Richard Stark. That name is, in fact, a pseudonym of one of King's favorite writers, Donald E. Westlake. King, of course, was using Bachman as a pseudonym to write Rage. Later in his career, King would write The Dark Half. Yes, I thought about in which this. Author Dad uh, Beaumont uses George Stark as a pseudonym, so there's kind of a loose. Yeah, I actually Googled it because I, when I saw Stark, I was like, "Wait a minute, is that the name used in Dark Half?" But then I saw George Stark. Yeah, but still, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's, and, and you know, this was written so early that any writer is going to have similar things in their work. But I think it was probably before Stephen King was really plotting out um, how his various books are connected because that was it the wastelands where they first really explore that where yeah. they stand the parallel stand universe yeah. so um once again i mean stephen king being a character in the song of Susanna connects all king books but yeah other other than a few little details i don't think rage has a ton does he mention uh is ludlow the town that carrie takes place in i can't remember no, no. So I, th- I thought it was chamberlain no you're you're right you're right um, yeah and so you hear some towns mentioned but and then there's the well and the, i think that isn't the asylum in banger it is in Banger, yeah, that's yeah. that is right. So I guess we're so I guess like that means this is in proximity to most of the small town the yeah. suburbs of Banger, essentially, yeah. Well there's you also do. that 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 uh weird section in Rage when like Roland um walks in. <laughs> would it's it, like, hey, what's going on, guys? He's like, I'll show you how to shoot. He blows off Charlie Decker's head. Would it would it give me back my gun? What if no. King did like a a re a re released one? That's how he ended it. He just has Roland come in and shoot Charlie oh, and be like, I would love it. I'd love well it. on that, have any of you read I think it's called Guns, the essay. Oh yeah, that he, he wrote, wrote an essay in uh, Stephen King, I think very perturbed by all the gun violence and maybe the fact that in a, the tiniest of ways that he inspired a few people mm-hmm. to uh, to do those sorts of things. He wrote an essay in 2013 called Guns. Was it? Did, was that the one written in light? Or I guess after it was Sandy Hook. After Sandy Hook. And yeah. he, he wrote one after Virginia Tech also when that killer's short stories came out and, and he had brought up what you said before about if someone had read Rage when I was in college, they probably would have deemed me yep. mentally ill. But Wikipedia I have not read that one. says, Guns is a nonfiction essay written by Stephen King on the issue of gun violence. He wrote it after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, elaborating on why he let the novel Rage and the Bachman books, the omnibus in which Rage also appeared, go out of print. Uh, it was a Kindle single, and all profits from guns will benefit the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence. Oh, that's good. I mean, yeah. you could tell, this is definitely something that he's remorseful about. Like, that he, that, that, that this is you know, out in the world. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, can you, you know. even imagine you create something that seems innocuous to you mm-hmm. and it goes on, obvi- I mean, indirectly to in some way fuel someone's oh, yeah. violent insanity? Well, and King is also, even from the beginning, I mean, King has always been a moralist. Uh, and, and I think sometimes to his detriment in certain books, yeah. he, he's very morally black and white. He has complex characters, but I feel like we always know who we're supposed to be rooting for, which is both a strength and a weakness. And so, you know, none of us know Stephen King personally, but I think it's safe to say he, he seems like he's a very good person. Um, he, 
he seems to have genuine compassion for people. I mean, you can tell that by his writing. So yeah, I can only imagine how a guy like that would be affected. Now, if it were like Brady Snellis or someone, I don't know. And yeah. <laughs> once we don't know him either, but there are, I think there are other writers who, even in the wake of all these school shootings, would it have been like, no, that's not my problem. It, I, it's art, people interpret it however, but I, you know, I do think that there's something to be said for how Stephen King And I think that this really speaks to a big part of where art is at in culture today, where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, we understand the influence that oh, yeah. certain topics and certain pieces of art can have on people, and that's led to a certain cautiousness in the creation of art, which is both justified but also limiting. Well, yeah, and it's you, something that I think we're all trying to navigate right you now. You have bands like, you know, Viet Cong changing yeah. their name, which that's a was very controversial on both sides because some people were like, what are you doing? Gang of Four didn't change their name and it's yeah. a similar thing. But at the same time, it, it's also tough. I mean, Stephen King also had the luxury of being able to pull rage when he had already gained his level of fame. He yeah. wasn't going to lose anything by that. Yeah. And it's hard now with the way art is created because if, you know, I, I used to be very on the side that Viet Cong should not have changed their name. But then I talked to some other people that were like, it's also hard though if you're that band. Like, what you, they're not a famous band. They're not making a living at it. What do you do if yeah. if, if all these people are clamoring for this? And it, it's a t- it's a tough thing. And I think it's only gotten tougher with how much information we're able to get it at just instantaneously. Like, imagine if Stephen King had written Rage these days before he was a famous writer, which he did write before he was famous. But if it had gotten released under his yeah. own name before he was famous, I, I feel like it would be career suicide. Oh yeah, almost, you know? yeah. He had lu- the luxury of how this came out to. Um, uh, you know, to, to be able to pull it because he was he had well, this a degree is the kind of story that I feel like most writers have in their pocket, but they don't release it. Oh, we know? all and, have stuff we're yeah. ashamed of writing. I have stuff that I have live journal entries that I think are probably still online that I would be embarrassed for other folks to see them, and I, they probably even have viewpoints that I would oh, consider absolutely. atrocious. I think I, I deleted my live journal. But I probably should. I deleted mine also. <laughs> I, too. I should. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, well, constant listeners, if you want to find uh, Dan Caffrey's live journal out there. Oh um, he has a the user photo uh, profile photo is uh, Alan Shumper from uh, Wet Hot American, Wet Hot Summer. American Summer. So don't worry, Mom. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on TV. See, it's okay. You saw it on the television. This is usually where we move to talk about adaptations of work. I think with most King, there's usually multiple adaptations a dollar baby of the work. Or something. Yeah, but uh, there really isn't. Um, uh, anything for Rage that uh, we found. So I think we're just going to do a fun little experiment and ask ourselves if we were going to make a movie of Rage, which we're not, <laughs> um, who would we cast? Who would be, so, you know, maybe from, I guess we can even think, we can think about it whether they made it in the 70s or now. Like who, what actors come to mind? Who would, mm. uh, who would, you know, be Charlie Decker? Let's start with the 70s. If this is the 70s, yeah. who's playing Charlie Decker in the 70s? It's Brad, tough, man. A young Brad Dourif. Ooh, that's actually not bad. I, I think. Well, I think you also have to consider what would you be trying to do with this adaptation? Because if it's us having the hindsight that we do with this book, I think you would want you would the difference you would want to make in the movie is compared to how the text is laid out is that you would want to outlight that we are out or um, highlight that we are not condoning this. Charlie Decker is a piece of shit, and I think <laughs> I think you can still do that while still being true to the novel. I think you can adjust the tone of it. So I think you need, you need to have someone who you could see why kids would be into him, but would be very clear to the audience that they're horrible. And I think Brad Dourif actually might be love good. Brad Dourif. Yeah. I've been I've been rewatching Deadwood, so he's in my head. Like yeah, that. I think Brad Dourif. Yeah, yeah. I, um, but I want old Brad Dourif from Deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> Play a kid. 
Maybe, maybe, um... A young Bruce Greenwood? I young Bruce Greenwood! Yeah. He, that's like what Well, the, no, he'd have to be Ted. He'd be that's Ted what, Jones, yeah. He's got that Jones. Oh, yeah, he's, he's a hunk. If, but the, the, whoever's on the cover of the Bachman book sitting on the desk is man. kind of a hunk, too. Well, that made me think, and it's because he already came up once, but that made me think of a young Matt Dillon. Oh, you know, he yeah. had that, like... 70s Bad boy hair, Dylan. wavy yeah. hair. And he and he, Matt Dillon is charismatic, but can be like an asshole really well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Dillon also. Yeah, I think either, either, either Kevin the, Dillon. Either the Dillon boys. <laughs> the Dillon boys. Wait, no no joke. I know I know. you guys are going to laugh at it because of his current standing in society. Young Charlie Sheen. Yeah? Oh, the, even the way oh, he yeah. looks. He looks. Yeah. yeah. Young Charlie Sheen, like pre platoon Charlie Sheen, yeah. looks he looks like that that Charlie on on the front of the book, and yeah. also he was someone else who was very good at being. And he would have been that age too. He would have, yeah, yeah, because platoon he's only in his early twenties. Yeah, right? so yeah. he because he's still in a high schooler. So yeah. like you know, and then maybe Emilio Estevez. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. We could do. A, <laughs> why don't we just the whole cast of the Breakfast? I know. I oh, was yeah. thinking the same thing. thing. <laughs> I mean, I I, I personally would have gone with Dreyfus. Yeah. For, uh, <laughs> for, uh, Richie you know, for Char- No, for Charlie. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> he comes in, you know, like, like right off of, uh, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, we- he comes in and plays like a high schooler. I think that'd be great. Are you kidding me? Oh, no, um, I, I think, uh, it's hard because I don't really know a lot of the, the kids around, like, the 70s because I'm trying to think of, like, kids from, like, Halloween, but I think they would be still look too old. Bob from Halloween. Yeah, Bob I mean, from Halloween. Yeah. I think the biggest yeah. problem is that, uh, I would hope that most of the actors that I think are good would read the story and go, fuck no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No fucking way. But, but, you know, but you know, to, to, to Dan's point, I, I really do think you can use this and make a, an actual story. I like, think you can. film out of it. I like, think if you took someone, if you, if you went minimalist with it and you only use dialogue from the book, but maybe you don't see the flashbacks, you just make it in real. I mean, hell, even if you filmed it in the way that Something like Elephant is... I know I keep bringing it up, but, you know... I would give it to Linklater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Linklater would be good, I, I think. I think he yeah. would be good for it. I think that... Oh, man, you know what? It's, it's, it's crazy, but, like, um, he's too old for it now. Maybe. But I think... Uh, I feel like Jesse Eisenberg would have been a perfect Charlie Decker. Yeah. Like, uh, because good, yeah. you could do the... Hate, you could, you, like, look at... Like, if you watch, like, Social Network... Like, but you can't hate it's, him. Like, you hate him in that movie. But, but you want to watch still, him, though, But you're too. still obsessed with what he's going to do next. And I feel like he would have been a great uh, Charlie Decker. I like the idea of Linklater just because I'm thinking about his period like in the slacker? 90s. Well, no, like his period in the 90s when he was adapting a lot of plays. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, like tape or something. Tape and then yeah. uh, uh, Suburbia because he made Suburbia. Suburbia is a play, the Eric Bogosian play. Um, and I love Eric Bogosian. Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, what up? Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, like, but no, um, like Suburbia... Suburbia... <laughs> Suburbia, shout out. <laughs> Suburbia is a um, a play that I loved when I was young, kind of like how I liked Rage when I was a teenager. And then um, I saw a play version of it, and I it was awful because yeah. whoever plays, I had the same experience. Yeah, and then um, but then you watch the movie, the Linklater movie, and I think it's pretty great because what Linklater understood was that the main character only works if he's full of shit. Exactly. If you yeah. if you know like Giovanni Ribisi plays him like a loser, the production of the play I saw played him like he was enlightened, and, and there was the, the same dialogue. Yeah. yeah. And like, in, if you played Charlie Decker like he was like he was a monster. Oh, it'd be great. Using the same language, I think that it would be a different kind of story. I mean, of course, you'd have to change other right. details. I, I get, I'm, I'm playing full producer's chair right now. I'm going, I'm going around the producer's <laughs> Mike's chair. Mike's got sunglasses you on. Get, you get <laughs> the kid stays in the picture. 2008 era Eisenberg. Yeah. Uh, yeah Mid 90s Link Ladder. Yeah. Um, 
2010 uh, uh, 2010 uh, Sorkin? Uh, oh, no, I think if you took Linklater and Sorkin and then did both Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield yeah. as, oh. that could actually yeah. be really be interesting cool. I mean I, I think <laughs> I, I think Garfield is, is a total hunk so I could see him as a Ted Jones uh, I like that idea. Plus, that would go ahead and make him the most sympathetic character in the oh, story. Yeah, which is we get uh, we get Bud Court to play the principal. Bud oh, Court, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's 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 great. That's oh, great. and can Stephen Root be the psychologist? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's perfect, yeah. I'm absolutely. watching this movie. Yeah. I. I I gotta say, I, I I think that might be uh, that could possibly be one of the best Stephen King adaptations. Ever. That's a bold I, I, statement. It <laughs> is because because it's elevating the text. I like the adaptations that make the story better. One, well, hey man, like, you know, if you think about something like Fight Club, like I think Fight Club, the book is, or the movie is an improvement upon the book. You know, there's yeah. so, and yeah. so um, yeah, I, I think I think it would just come down to tone. I think if you have a um a director and a writer who are aware of the faults of the book and how to use that to the film's advantage, I think that'd be good. Yeah, you would have to get past the challenge of, I mean, I know we're talking in dream world right now, but I mean, if, I don't even know if King would like want it. To be no, he would, yeah. it. he would Is want this, it. I know not all of his books have been movies by this point by a long shot, but I do feel like most of his books have at least been in development at some point, or like someone has optioned the the rights to them. Has has that even ever happened with Rage? I, I've never. Read I anything I, I imagine it. he doesn't. But here, that gives me a good a good idea. You know, we talked earlier about how this is King when he's younger, not as skilled as he is in like yeah. the seventies and such. What if the adaptation? He you know Sorkin's worked with other people too. Let's say he pairs with Sorkin and is able to rewrite the this story like in the right way. And it's like that a would redemption be for King to kind of get out there and do it. And that's a rare thing for a writer. To, like yeah. For him to recognize this early novel is shit, I know the right moral compass to put into it now. Yeah. I know the right way to make it an effective book. And I, and I don't mean redemption, the fact that I'm sitting here going like, oh, shame on you, King. I'm thinking for his own personal redemption. Exactly. It's clearly based on, you know, Allison just shared the the, the, the um, guns nonfiction essay. Clearly something He's that still resonance, yeah. re- resonates with him. This is a way for him to come back and say, look, look we're going to put this, you know, put this right. He's going to make some money off of yeah, it. Yeah, No, I didn't mean, like, maybe you can take, like, maybe you can, you know, donate some money to, uh... Brady Campaign. Yeah. Brady Campaign, yeah. Exactly. Uncle Steve, if you're listening, I know. uh... I know, I, know, I know you've been listening this whole time and just haven't yeah. spoken up yet, but... You know. <laughs> look, if they're going to make a Bachman book into a movie... It's gotta be a long walk. Oh yeah, I actually really like the long walk. Well, especially long Springsteen's walk. doing the, the the score for yeah. it. Yeah, you know, um, the it's score. gonna be a long walk home. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think that wraps it up for uh, yeah. The yeah. I'd say um, I'd say now let's let's cap this off with some overall thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> Okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. I think we've all been clear about our thoughts of the novel. Do you guys yeah. have any final things? I said? mean, I'd say my final thought is that this is the work of a young, um, emotionally developing, confused, talented writer who was not ready to write about these subjects yet and needed to write this more for himself than an audience and for that reason i i feel like it really never should have been released so um i give this on a scale of one to five red pennywise clown noses i give it a uh uh a one clown nose oh Ooh, yeah just a single one floating there in the yep. sewer yeah just floating in the sewer i also give it a single red clown nose 
that you then put on the floor, <laughs> and then some slut digs Ooh. her heel into it, yes. and you hear something break inside the clown. Like nose. there's like little bones inside the clown. Yeah, nose. like you hear, and then they call it clown nose thing for the rest, of, and then the clown nose gets shock therapy. That's and when they that's I, what I, I give love it. the idea of a little clown nose in like a like a table with like little electric like giving yeah. it shock therapy and, it's and a bunch of doctors. Yeah. Uh, I also the if we've inspired any young filmmakers out there to somehow for some reason make a movie of rage, I. I'd like to go ahead and request that you just cast all the women with the same woman, um, yeah. since they're all basically the same character anyway. That would be a really and, and then Irma, though. and then you cast someone else because she's the dog. I don't yeah. know if you picked up on this, but she's the ugly one. Oh, so like, just nothing but Tatiana Maslany, Ooh. and then one other random horse face. Yeah. And uh, Tatiana's coming out soon with the, the other half. Can't wait. The other half? What's that? It's a movie that came out last year at uh, Chicago Film Critics. Is, is, is it know, good? It's good. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, go on a tangent, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shout out to um, Tatiana. And, and also when that clown nose gets stepped on, there's a little hedge line inside that says, watch it! Watch it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, oh, I love those hedge Shining animals. callback. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to give it one bright red Pennywise clown nose. I'm going to throw a half clown nose in there because of King's later perspective on it. I think there's something to be said for that. And, sure. And the fact yeah, that he's... Maybe at, yeah. I give his response to its existence as a human being like four clown noses. <laughs> yeah. But the story itself. That, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So, yeah. You know, let's, I'm not going to break it up this time. Let's go with one. one All right. One bright red Pennywise clown um, nose. Yeah, I'm going to go with one also. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm usually uh, pretty Harsh critical with, uh, with some of these stories, but... This one, I mean, you could conceivably go even lower than that, but I, there are, it, it opens up the argument. I mean, like, look, we've spent the last two hours, I don't know how much, um, how long we've actually spent on it, but we've, even longer than that, but it, it, we've had a great discussion about something that is clearly a problem in our culture. And I think that if that is a, if that creates that dialogue, Great, and I think that's yeah. worth the red nose, you know, alone. <laughs> um, well, and can we? Is it safe to say? And who knows? Maybe we're forgetting about something, and maybe as we go on, we'll we'll discover something that's worse. I mean, I I think it's probably my least favorite Stephen King book. It's definitely mine. Easily. Yeah, mine too. It's probably yeah. his too. I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Duma Key is pretty bad, but uh, oh, Duma Key is good. Oh, it's not good. <laughs> not good. Not good. Stand right. by it. Um, well, great. Uh, as we close, I just want to share one last little piece of info I found is that used copies of the first printing paperback. Uh, for Rage, um, you can they sell for anywhere between seven hundred dollars and two thousand. What is wrong with you people? It oh is uh, on Bookfinder. This is in twenty fourteen, but on Bookfinder.com's wow. list of the hundred most sought after out of print books, um, Rage is ranked higher than any other novel at number two overall. Oh, wow. Sure. What are the other Bachman books ranked as? I, mean, I know Rage is out of print, so that um, well, I don't, I don't. I mean, maybe the individual. No, because you can still get Long Walk. Like I had an individual copy. Did you of really? Long Walk. I had both the Bachman books and an individual copy. I don't have the first edition, but I have, an, I have an individual one. I've, yeah. I've never it, so. seen um, an individual outside of, I mean, thinner and, and regulators and whatever, yes, but these first four, I've never seen. I've seen Roadwork and Long Walk. I haven't seen I've Running seen Running Man. Man somewhere, Maybe I've yeah. seen Running Man. I think I saw like a Schwarzenegger tie to that, but yeah. the, the first three I definitely have never seen ever, like in a library yeah. or, or elsewhere. Um, well, yeah, this has been a great discussion about a not-so-great book, so thanks, guys. But before we close out, I want to give, um, I want to thank Allison for joining us, yeah. and you'll be seeing more of her as we move forward. Um, but she also has another podcast about another piece of, um, 
um, art that you may also love. So I'm going to let her just plug that for a moment. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, Julie Starbird and I, who's maybe the funniest person I know, host a podcast called Podlander Drunkcast and Outlander Podcast. Um, it is exactly what it sounds like. If you are a fan of the television show or the Outlander or the books uh, from which they're inspired, or you like Ronald Moore, or you like listening to women get drunk and say really filthy things about good-looking <laughs> men, um, then that's the podcast for you. <laughs> is, you can find us on Twitter at PodlanderCast. Is Julie funnier than Charlie Decker? <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter <laughs> at the Losers Club Pod. Yeah. Uh, and also on Facebook and also on Instagram. And again... Um, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us a review on Facebook. Uh, send us a message and tell us, uh, you know, the opera of rage that we missed out oh, and man. we didn't catch. Oh, um, oh, no, we love to engage with you guys. We love to talk. And um, this is all discussion and, and uh, you know, a community. And anything so. we missed or that, yeah. you know, anything you want to touch on thematically, feel free to listen. Yeah, we really want to hear your thoughts on rage too. So please post on our wall. Um, Facebook tells us that we have a very high response rate. So um, <laughs> well, that's because there's many of us who run that account. So <laughs> there's a bunch of us. So you're going to get, you know, some snark. You're going to get some sass. <laughs> and you usually get some, some love. If you some class a, and some ass. If you're getting oh, yeah. a smiley emoji, though, that's either Dan or I, right? Yeah, you I guys, never did emojis. Yeah, you and Justin don't. Me, know, me and Randall are the we're the nice boys, and then uh, <laughs> just Justin and Rothman. If you get a boys, if you get a curt response, it's probably from Justin. Matt, Matt, Matt's a night. Mac is Mac, a nice. Oh, Mac, Mac, Mac nice finds too. a lot of uh, really cool um, um, stuff to share, like media wise. That's uh, that's pretty. Uh, yeah, that's fun. And I don't know, Allison, what's, what's your what's your Facebook uh, presence going to be, or like tonally, what 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 is it like? Um. I guess kind of snarky, but probably it'll just be about how apparently all women's are women's are virgins or slutsies. Yeah, <laughs> that'll well, probably be it. That sounds about right. If um, you see any, if you see an uh, a feminist killjoy in your midst, that's probably <laughs> Dan. What? That's Dan. Um, thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll uh, we'll see you in two weeks with um, Night Shift, which is going to be a new kind of episode for us. Long, Long days, days and pleasant nights. Well, I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. Well, I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you Consequence Podcast Network. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. I'm Molly Hockey. I'm an actor, writer, comedian. I'm 40, I'm single, and I'm trying to get pregnant, so I started Spermcast. I interviewed potential sperm donors, doctors, witches, scientists, surrogates. I did hilariously awkward home inseminations. I got pregnant. I had a miscarriage. I laughed. I cried. A lot. I got sperm from a sperm bank and started fertility treatments. Now here I am in season three. If you're pondering motherhood or in the thick of trying to get there, or if you just like comedy and watching a woman lose her ever-loving mind in real time, subscribe now to Spermcast. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.